pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning. Uh, golly, seems seems a little strange uh, getting up and doing a live show on Saturday morning. Of course, it was nice uh, Christmas and New Year's when... They uh, they basically closed down live programming, so all the all the studio staff can get a little extra time. But glad to be back here with you live this morning. A lot has happened since we last talked <laughs> with the with the winter weather and now back to summer. But anyway, we have a lot to talk about. You know the number two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Ah, James and Martha are already on the first couple of lines, but we have a couple of them left. So if you'd like to get in early, again, that number, 210-599-5555. And since I hate to keep people waiting, uh, James is at the front of the line this morning. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not sure about all the plants out there in the world, but some of them are, some of them aren't. But uh, I guess that's the way of the world. What about you? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, that uh, 15 degrees wiped out uh, uh, one of the big cilantro plantings, but another one made it, so everything's looking pretty good. That's about the only thing we got going on this time of the year. Well, that's a good thing. I think we always have to remind everybody that uh, uh, just because we've had one big bad cold spell doesn't mean that winter's over. We're, we're sitting here, what is today, about the 7th of January, we we probably have some cool weather ahead of us, even though it feels like uh, early summer out there during the day. So uh, what else is going on? I bet you're getting those tomato transplants ready, along with peppers and other things, too. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm starting the uh, uh, jalapenos and serranos and uh, yellow wax and what else, bell peppers. And the first round of, uh, of tomatoes getting them started on the inside on the heat mats, you know, with the lights and everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that, if you want a nice big one-gallon plant, uh, January is, you know, the time to get started if, you, uh, if you'd like to start your own seeds. Well, and when you get them into gallons, you know, you just have to dig a little bit bigger hole, but for... Most folks, uh, if they've got six inches of garden soil, that's that's not an issue. And the nice thing about having them in gallons is if we have that late cold spell, you just hold them a little bit longer before you go out and put them in the ground and worry about them. So, uh, uh, but, you know, you mentioned light, and to me that's that's the big secret. People just don't realize how important that bright light is to uh, keep that plant short and stocky because I tell you, it's been my experience that if you – let them let them come up and get a little bit wimpy. They sometimes don't ever turn into real good plants. So you want them you want them with a good light from the from the day that little uh, pair of seed leaves comes poking itself up out of the ground. You want to have lots of sunlight in there to 
break down that hormone that causes the cells to stretch. I think I don't think there's anything such as a tomato plants is too short or too fat. No, the the lights come on on the timers even before the 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 seed has has come up because if, even if you miss it by you know six or eight hours, you've got a real wimpy limpy transplant. You might just as well throw it away because it's never going to be uh, stout like you're talking about. Right. What what kind of lights do you use, and how close do you have well, them to your trays? LED. Uh, those four-foot LED uh, lights that you can get at the hardware store. And then yeah. I've got some professional lights, too. And but how... Anybody how, can get going with those. How close do you have those uh, Do you have those bulbs hanging above your seed trays? Uh, about a foot. Uh, yeah. Is yeah that, about where I keep it. That's, that's the other thing I try to always emphasize to people is... Uh, uh, you can't put the light up on the ceiling and the little plant down on the floor and expect it to really do much. I, I think a physicist once told me that light diminishes by the inverse of the square, which basically means that at uh, two feet you get a fourth as much light, at three feet you get a ninth as much, at four feet you get a sixteenth as much. So uh, I think that's another mistake that a lot of beginning gardeners make that are starting them out under lights is they have those uh, tubes way too high up above the plants and when you're using the leds or even if you're still using the old fluorescents uh they're not generating any heat you're not going to hurt those little plants by having the bulbs just practically right on top of them that's really the way to do it to keep the transplant short and stocky uh you know uh in the old days they used to put them on the windowsill but that you know that's really a waste of time because you're not going to be successful. <laughs> yep. You know, no matter what window it is, it doesn't get light all day long. It it might get bright light for a little while, but uh, windowsill just doesn't cut it. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of advocating to people, too, if for gardeners that are really serious about it, to go back to the old tradition that uh, people did, uh, you know, 50 years ago, uh, uh, of having a cold frame and tomatoes and peppers like it warmer but you know a lot of our cool season stuff like your cilantro and uh you know all those cold family plants cold frame is a great place to get those little transplants started maybe maybe have them on the mat to get them germinated but uh that old cold frame you know it keeps it warm enough for them to grow but uh uh, you know, you're not spending any money on electricity or anything else and uh, I, I don't know have you ever had a cold frame Oh yeah, we used to we used to grow in cold frames way back in the day with those big heavy uh, glass uh, uh, four, four foot by four foot uh, window yeah. frames that came out of the old school. Yeah. But nowadays they have the the real nice lightweight plastic. It's it's really really the way to go if you're going yeah. cold frame. Yeah, if the only difference is you have to put a hook on it to hold it down when the wind blows, because those old glass ones never went anywhere, but these little lightweight ones uh, doesn't take much of a breeze to make them go flying open. But uh, I'm not sure why why we got away from that, because I think that's, uh, you know, that that's just a a great accessory to the garden, so to speak, and uh, a whole lot easier than running something in and out of the shed under your light frames and uh, like I say I don't I don't know if that's the way to go with really warm plants like peppers and tomatoes but 
boy, the the kind of things that uh, you know we're still planting this time of year, like broccoli and cabbage and and cilantro and a few other things. Uh, I'm 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 still wondering why we don't use cold frames as much as we once did. Well, there's not a lot of old gardeners left to. Uh you know, relay that information to the younger gardeners. Uh, I think that's <laughs> what it's all about. <laughs> that, that's why there's a couple of us old-timers uh, sitting here on the radio talking about it this morning. <laughs> hey, hey, Bob, um, Rincon Vitova in California, the insectiary uh, outfit, yeah. uh, yeah. Malcolm Beck got me going on those guys, I don't know, 40 years ago, whenever it was. Yeah. And... Um, They've got a, a bait station. It's called the Ant Pro that dispenses the, uh, oh, I guess it's it's a boric acid uh, uh, dilution that, that you get from them. You buy it really? at a time. Uh-huh. And I rent those bait stations from them. It's uh, $18 a year. And uh, they're... Uh, they're working pretty good. Uh, in the cold of the year, I still have ants around the compost pile, and uh, they're they're going to the bait station and carrying the the sugar syrup off to wherever they they go with it. And the thing about it is, in the cool of the year, when you can't really get them to go to a, like come and get it, they'll they'll visit the sugar water because that's something they really like. And you, you know more about that than I do, why, they, why they're why they so interested in the sugar water. I know they they like the aphids quite well. Well, yeah. And it all comes down to energy. It comes down to high-energy carbon bonds, and there's a lot more of it, you know, in sugar than there is in just about anything else. That's why it's so good in the compost pile to get things breaking down. So, um Anyway, that that's a that's an interesting idea. I didn't know that uh, that they were offering those, but uh, uh, as long as you're not getting that boric acid on your plants, it's pretty toxic to most plants. But if you do it in a bait station, that sounds like a a pretty good way to go after them. And of course, it's it's toxic because it's abrasive to them when they when they intake it. It just you know it starts cutting up the inside of them. So it's one of those things you don't have to worry about. Uh, you know, other animals getting into it or, you know, any toxicity to yourself or anything being taken up by your plants. It's like I say, other than other than being toxic to plants, uh, um, boric acid is one of the best things to ever come along for insect control, for insects, hard-shelled insects like ants. The thing is, Bob, is uh, to make two gallons of syrup, you need uh, five pounds of sugar and about three or four ounces of the boric acid. I get that from... Uh, Rencon, yep. and that's not a whole lot of money. If I could come and get it, it's $20. Yeah, and it has a shelf life, especially if it gets hot. So, you know, instead of spending $120, excuse me, $120, $140 a year on, on come and get it, uh, I'm, I'm trying to reduce, you know, the cost of doing business. It's a whole <laughs> lot cheaper for that. Mixing up that sugar water and that boric uh, acid. You know, you I'm can house- buy the bait stations. They're I think thirty dollars a piece. But uh-huh. I'm just renting them now, just to, just to check everything out. Well, James, you're always a wealth of information for it. I hope uh, 
Hope 2023 is off to a good start for you. And uh, I'm going to move along and look forward to our next visit. And you get out and celebrate the, the warm weather to start the year off and try to keep it around for us. It's always good to talk to you, and we'll we'll do it again. Martha, hang on just a second. You will be up next, and it'll be Richard and Lydia. Right now, I get to talk to you about Medina Agriculture for just a moment. They also want to wish everyone the happiest new year and uh, remind everybody that one of the other secrets to doing well with your plants is good nutrition. And that's one of the many things that Medina has specialized in for many, many years. Natural products, some of them certified organic, but always products that work with nature, not against nature. You're not going to find those things out there that break down the soil and break down the humic acid. You're going to find the products that build the life in the soil, build the humic acids in the soil, build the carbon in the soil. That's what nature, that's the way nature meant the world to work. And Medina's been doing it for, what, 55 years in this area now. Products like their Hastergrow products, the Hastergrow plant, which has very, very wide uses, Hastergrow lawn, which is great on your turf grass, and, of course, your dry fertilizers. Oh, gosh, you know, the, the uh, growing green, and there's new one going to be coming out pretty soon I'll be telling you about. And, of course, uh, the other liquid that I love is that new liquid fish formulation. I just, boy, I alternate that with Hastergrow plant, and the results are just amazing. They also produce products which will help soften that soil. So many good things come from Medina. If you'd like to see the full list, go to their website at medinaag.com. If you want to see where to get those things, simply go to your good dark garden center or nursery that carries good organic and natural products. That's where you're going to find lots of good things from our friends at Medina. Sounds good to me. Let's just keep moving along. <laughs> no commercials? What's happening? I guess uh, oh, maybe we're off to the new year and a good start. Let's move right along and say good morning, Martha. Good morning. All right. Morning. I've got a bunch of cutting back to do. <laughs> um, my white fringe flower bush, uh-huh. if I cut it back now, will it put some out and probably get hit with the next one or well, should I just wait that's that's just an excellent question and you're gonna have to look carefully at your white fringe flower um, mm-hmm. and I I am going to be reluctant to cut back uh, things that simply had foliage damage because if we cut down into uh-huh. green wood that's going to stimulate new growth which could be nipped um in the next freeze i I, it's just hard for me to believe that we're totally out of the woods here sitting on the 7th of january uh things that have totally frozen like you know your softer perennials indigo spires and uh just you know that whole a lot of the salvias a lot of the uh, soft salvias Mm -hmm. things like your durantas uh all those things where you're simply cutting dead tissue that doesn't stimulate anything happening, but um, what I if if I had the white fringe flower or you know the purple one or any of them, and and this uh-huh. goes for most of the shrubs too, I'm going to take my fingernail and I'm going to scratch that stem. If I'm seeing healthy green, and by that I mean that you know bright, good-looking green, not uh-huh. that kind of dark, 
a little bit necrotic looking green. But if I'm seeing bright, live, happy tissue, I'm not going to cut down into that. I'm going to go down the stem as far as I'm finding brown or that that dark, unhealthy green because I know that's dead tissue and I'm not going to do a thing except make the plant look better by trimming that off. But if I'm finding bright, live green tissue, I'm going to be reluctant to cut that far down because that's where I'm likely to stimulate new growth. And uh, that's that's the reason I'm sure for the day's over we'll be having discussions about roses and things like that because lots of the Mm -hmm. roses look terrible, but it is simply cosmetic. It's all on the foliage. And, uh, you know, I'm telling people either put up with a look or just, you know, trim off the leaves. You don't want to be, it is too early on roses mm-hmm. and many other things to be doing that pruning that we typically do in February. Because as you so accurately brought up, when you prune, you stimulate new growth. And that new growth takes a while to harden off. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying take the time to scratch that stem and be sure you're cutting dead tissue only. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, okay. Um, what can I plant in a perennial line to that will bloom and attract in the bees the same time that my peach trees are blooming? <laughs> There's not much out there that's going to do it in perennials. They've, <laughs> they've pretty much they they pull their heads down and they're still sleeping soundly underneath that layer of mulch. And uh, oh golly, I. I'm not bringing to mind much of anything perennial-wise. Now, shrub-wise, if you want to plant um, uh, the sweet olive, uh, osmanthus, that is a beautiful shrub, blooms in January, most fragrant flowers you will ever find, and uh, very, very attractive to the bees. Uh, Many of the different eleagnus plants, plants uh, makes a, a bigger shrub of course and a little bit different rougher leaf but eleagnus is another january bloomer um but uh perennials i golly they're just there there are a lot of things some of your salvia gregiis may be in bloom now most of them salvia gregii of course is an evergreen salvia but most of the ones i look at that that cold freeze if you you know, a couple of weeks ago, that really did in the buds. Plants aren't hurt, but uh, there's sure not much in there for the bees to come to. Uh, same thing mm-hmm. goes for Blackfoot Daisy and the others. So uh, if you're looking to something that's going to give you good January flowers, uh, I'd look first at Sweet Olive, then maybe at Eliagnus. And uh, if we, if you're in an area with really good soil, there's some camellias you could actually think about planting that uh, bloom, some of the japonicas that bloom in early spring. So it's certainly possible to have Carlici. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) um, you know there are bulbs that you could have planted. It's getting a little late. I guess you could still stick some paper whites in there, and they'll be in bloom in a couple of weeks. That's true. And uh, if you're if you're getting the naturalizing narcissus, uh, they're going to come back year after year, and Mm -hmm. are just you know an excellent thing to have out there. But that would be, you know, that that would be a good handout for us to do sometime. And the list wouldn't be too long, but it's things things that bloom while the weather is still cold just to support the bees and the other pollinators because they're still active out there. So, uh, great question, but I, I just, you know. What about flowering quince? Flowering quince would be another excellent one. I love flowering quince. I, I grew up with that plant in my grandparents' yard. That would be another great one for this time of year. Yeah. Okay, my oxblood lilies uh-huh. did not bloom at all this year. 
they didn't do well last year. What can I do to stimulate them? Fertilize at this time of year okay. when they have the foliage on them, and be mm-hmm. sure they're getting pretty full sun. Oh, that's probably the sun's. I'm losing some of my sun. Uh, okay. Get out uh, your pruning shears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. And, um, and remember to water through the summer months. Even even oh, yeah. when you're not seeing the foliage on your oxbloods, those bulbs need, oh, yeah. you know, some hydration. And um, most years, they, we get plenty to satisfy a dormant bulb, but uh, yeah, well, right now, there's not much moisture really deep in the soil. So um, They were uh, under the um, bird bath, so they got plenty of water. Well, then then in that case, it's probably... <laughs> probably they probably wouldn't. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and this is a time of year. This is a time that uh, they're rebuilding those bulbs for next season's uh, bloom. So mm-hmm. uh, take good care of them and get them in as Get as much sunlight to them as you possibly can, and if that means doing a little tree trimming, uh, so be it. Uh, yeah, if I can get my son-in-law to do that. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, Oh, I was going to say, I pulled a trowel out of one of my pots. The soil was frozen at least three inches down. I've never seen it do that before. In a pot. old. <laughs> well, and in a pot, that's not unusual, um, so... It's uh, <laughs> it, mm. it it happens, and it has certainly happened this year. So uh, yes, uh, it was really strange. <laughs> well, good luck with all of your replantings and trimmings and all that we are now doing. And well, thank you most kindly, and hope the ha- hope the new year is happy and healthy. And uh, it's just you know, it, it we're off. I think we're going to be off to a real good start, and gardeners are among the most optimistic people with good outlooks that I know. So uh, uh, just get out there and do what you do every January, and we'll look forward to when spring really gets here and not just as pretending <laughs> to be here. Right. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, and you have a great you have a great weekend. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. All right, uh, back to gardening. It's sure nice to be sitting here talking to you guys live this morning. It was it was nice not to have to get up at three fifteen the weekends of Christmas and New Year's, and uh, I know all the engineering staff at the station enjoyed that too because everybody everybody enjoys the day off every now and then. But I'm sure happy to be with you here today. Ah, let's see. Looks like the next couple of callers are going to be Richard and Lydia. So let's just keep on going down that list. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. I hope you're doing well this morning. So far, so good. Sitting here with my hot tea and uh, looking out at a dark nursery, but it's going to get a lot lighter and a lot prettier here before too long. My question today is I have a uh, 30-gallon crepe myrtle that I planted about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and have done nothing with it except just uh, water it once a week. During the winter months during dormancy, is there a recommendation for an organic fertilizer that I can put on it, preferably to uh, stimulate root uh, uh, root growth? You can go a couple of different ways. Um, if you want to do the easy thing and put out a dry fertilizer that's going to feed over two or three months, uh, there are several good dry fertilizers. My favorite one is one Medina makes. They call Growing Green. Uh, there's also a very good one by Maestro Grow called Texas Tea. 
Uh, there's also a very good one by Nature's Creation that they call Premium Lawn Food. Uh, these are all, you know, totally organic uh, in nature. Uh, and is you could also, if you would prefer, you could go with liquid organics. And uh, I know Happy Frog makes some. Again, I like the Medina products. The uh, uh, Like the Hester Grove plant would be good on your crepe myrtle. Medina's liquid fish would be very good on your crepe myrtle. Uh, the difference is if you're using a liquid, you, you really ought to be doing it about every two or three weeks. If you're using the dry, you can do it about every two or three months. Uh, the liquids work a little faster. Um, it just kind of depends on your schedule. If, if you've got time, you know, and a memory good enough or a calendar that you can write it down on to keep up with when you need to fertilize, I think you certainly get faster results. And uh, what I do with most plants is I alternate uh, Medina's liquid fish with the Medina has to grow plant. But uh, if you just want to be sort of one and done, put out uh, your growing green or something like that, put a little bit of mulch on top of it, don't bring the mulch up. That's one of the biggest problems with crepe myrtles, and I'd almost bet you that 30-growling crepe myrtle came to you already buried too deeply in the pot. So you do want to be sure you have that root flare exposed. But uh, feeding is a great idea this time of year, and uh, your only real big decision is just do I want to use the dryer or do I want to use the liquid? Good. I've got some good suggestions. There's also a little bit of clay in the soil. Does that change uh-huh. your recommendations? Not on fertilizing. Not in the okay, least. Good. But, but uh, you know, you give me an opportunity there to talk just for a second about why organics are so good. When you're dealing with a synthetic nitrate-type fertilizer, like the ones you see in the box stores and lots of the ones you hear advertised, every time you use a fertilizer that has no carbon in it, like these nitrate products do, then the microbes in the soil have to break down the things that keep your soils loose and open. And the more organic material you lose, the harder that soil becomes, the more clay-like that soil becomes. Every time you use an organic fertilizer, you're putting carbon, you're putting energy back in the soil, and you're supporting those microbes that start pulling those little clay particles apart. They, it's it's kind of a silly name. Uh, they produce something called sticky substance, and they it's those microbes making use of the energy and the carbon in the soil that pull those clay particles apart and go from a tight, you know, anaerobic soil to a loose, open soil. So just by staying organic, you're going to gradually com- be converting that uh, uh, that heavy clay hard pan into a much more friable, much better soil for all of your plants. So just stay organic and uh, don't worry about the clay. It gets better every time you fertilize. And I'll do that. Good recommendations, Bob, and I'll get to work. Thank you. You get out and have a great weekend, Richard. Thank you, sir. Uh, next in line is Lydia. Good morning, Lydia. Morning. Happy Good New morning. Year. And to you I as well. Thank you. I have missed your show big time. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be back here for you today. Oh, yes. And waking up early. Okay. Listen to me, please. Between me and my sibling, we planted organic seeds a little late for bell pepper. The uh-huh. most happiest bell pepper we both had. The foliage was beautiful, happy with all the organic fertilizer and food. Well, I accidentally lost mine in the freeze because I left it outside. Hers is foliage, beautiful, beautiful. I have seeds that I saved, so 
between the two of us that she still has her good foliage and I do not, but do have that healthy dirt. What do we do next? Plant some more seeds. <laughs> it's okay. uh, it we for most folks. It is just now. You probably heard my first caller, James, this morning, who's a commercial, uh, a small scale commercial. Not not a. He doesn't farm, you know, hundreds of acres, but he he farms smaller areas. But uh, that's what we were talking about. That January is the month for most of us. If we have a good way to start our seeds inside, we have a good light source. We can keep the plants small and compact. This is the month we need to be planting tomatoes and peppers and. Um, eggplant, all those things we're going to be setting out from transplants uh, in another 60 days or so. So uh, by all means, uh, uh, you guys plant some more seed. Just remember, those uh, little seedlings need real bright light to make nice, stocky, young plants. And if you don't have a bright enough place or a greenhouse, um, you can always uh, get some plant lights or something like that that you can hang down real close to the to your seedlings and get them off to a good start. But uh, as for your sister, just, you know, keep on fertilizing, keeping those plants in real bright light. And uh, she's going to have peppers before you are, but I'm sure she'll share. But uh, it, okay. this is this is the right time to start some more plants. And uh, while you're at it, be thinking if you want to start some tomatoes or eggplant or anything like that. because You're, you're, uh, you're asking too much. <laughs> you're asking too much <laughs> for gardeners that don't know. Well, I'll well, put more seeds in the same dirt because I do have a bucket. We carry our plant in and out. I just forgot mine during the freeze, and it killed it. So well, can I if, you, if it was dirt? a choice choice between your pl- the plants and your pipes, you probably made the right choice. But uh, yes, you you can use you can use the same dirt, no problem at all. I probably uh, pull up the frozen plants; they're not doing any good. And uh, but you know you don't. You don't have to change soil. Soil doesn't wear out. Soil gets better with time when you garden organically. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you so much for coming back. Uh, it's my pleasure. I will be here. Other than I do have to do a little traveling for gift markets and business and things like that. But, you know, I'm going to be here most weekends for you, and I'll sure look forward to talking to you. You you have a wonderful weekend, and I hope it's a wonderful Happy New Year for you. Let me get a break in here, and we'll be back and talk to Robert and Pop in just a moment. I get to talk to you for a moment about my friends over at Fanix. And, uh, oh, let me tell you, Fanix is just one of those places you talk about a busy place, stocking up and getting ready for spring. And, of course, this is a time, if you're thinking of planting fruit trees, things like peaches and plums and pears and apples and uh, oriental persimmons, things like that, well, this is the time that you want to get those in the ground. And Fanix is well-stocked on all of those uh, all of those fruit trees. Also, a uh, great time to be planting your wintertime vegetables. I know a lot of them froze. We simply got colder than anybody thought we were going to get, and uh, even plants who were covered, uh, a lot of them suffered. Uh, we just, you just couldn't protect them enough. But Fanix is well-stocked on vegetables that can go right back into the ground. I'm sure they have their onion plants in now, and uh, won't be very long before we start getting things like leeks. And, of course, next month, seed potatoes are coming along. Fanix, though, with over 10 acres of nursery, they've got room to have lots and lots of plants, and they certainly do. Lots of trees that qualify for the Green Shade Rebate Program from CPS Energy. And, of course, they've got those fun new products, too, like the Traeger grills and all the accessories, plus all that Ego lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment. 
Huh, just lots of good reasons to get yourself over to Home Green Road because that's where Fanix has been for over 85 years and where they still are today. Go see them. I don't think they'll probably be closed again until Easter. They'll be there every day to help you. That's Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. Check out their website at Fanick, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanickNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next three callers are going to be Robert and Pop and Tracy. Robert is in the first position. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Well, it has to do with uh, the lemon and uh, orange tree. Um, th- these were these are in the ground. The um, with the cold, they they the leaves sort of dried up and uh, you know became brown and stayed on the the trees. Now I, I I took the leaves off, shook the trees, or pulled the leaves off. But uh-huh. how's it? What does, that, what does that mean for the tree itself? It means wait and see. Um, if your lemons, if by, or I mean your li, uh, I'm sorry, if your oranges, by oranges you mean the satsumas, the tangerines, right. they almost certainly will survive and come back out. And at this point, I don't really recommend doing more than what you've already done, and that's just taking the frozen leaves off and make them look a little bit nicer. But when they do sprout out and begin to produce new growth, you can assume that anything above that point is frozen and dead. It might well you might as well cut it off. If your if your orange tree was six feet tall and the new growth is coming out at three feet, just you know flop that top three feet off and let it come out. Lemons are certainly more cold hardy than limes, but we got awfully cold in most of the area, and most of the lemons did very much suffer some freeze damage. And with those in particular, you're going to have to watch the base of the plant very carefully. Now, probably 85% of the lemons that are sold in this area are grafted. There are some lemons that are sold on their own root, so to speak. They're grown from cuttings. So uh, their rootstock is the same as the top of the plant. The majority of the lemons out there are grafted onto a, a rootstock it is very vigorous. It might be sour orange, might be carrizo. There are a bunch of different ones that they use. But unfortunately, with lemons and limes, um, the what if the, when the top of the plant suffers some damage, the rootstock starts to sprout out and grow, and it will not produce an edible fruit. It'll make fruit, but uh, you couldn't eat it. Uh, so you want to watch the base of the plant because that's where new growth is going to appear. If the new growth is coming out above the graft point, uh, then let it come out and grow. It will eventually make a new tree. It will give you wonderful lemons. If the root, if the green is coming out below the graft point, cut it off immediately because that is not good for anything unless you want to let it come out and then regraft the tree. But you want to keep cutting off anything that comes out below that graft point, which is usually pretty easy to identify. Keep cutting that off to try to force the tree to come out above that at which point you can yeah. let it come out and grow. Now, um, I'm encouraging people these days, even though they, they're not quite as strong starting out, I love the fact that we can get cutting-grown citrus once again. In the first couple of years, they're, they, they're not as stable in the ground. This is one, way, one place that I think you may need to give them some support till they get a real root, good root system going, or else you need to start with a little bit bigger tree. But... Um, 
just watch all your citrus. I have no doubt that the that the satsumas are going to come out probably well up the trunk. Lemons and limes, it's a real big if, and just be sure that any growth that comes out on those is coming out above above the graft point. But other than that, just keep up your normal good uh, fertilizing, water them when the soil's good and dry, an inch or so deep, and uh, keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, they. I guess the news on, on the my uh, the lemons are it, it was a cutting grown tree. So okay, well then in that case, that, uh, I, that's excellent. Uh, uh, you know, then you don't have to worry about the rootstock regrowing. And chances are very high that it will come out. Chances are it's going to come out much further down the trunk uh, than that orange is. But uh, I, I, especially if you had it mulched, I, I imagine you will. It'll probably be March, maybe even April before we start seeing new growth because that soil is still pretty chilly. And we don't really want things sprouting out too early because I'm, I'm going to be very surprised uh, if we don't have some more, at least chilly, hopefully not bitterly cold weather, but uh, uh, winter's not over by any means yet. No, that's for sure. One more thing. On the uh, amaryllis, it had nice long green leaves. Now, of course, those got frozen back. Anything special to do to the uh, tuber to the bulb that's in the ground there? Feel, yeah, feel the bulb. So long as the bulb is hard, uh, your amaryllis is going to be fine. Uh, there are American amaryllis, which you have no problem with our winters. A lot of the Dutch amaryllis, so-called the hippiastrums, um, some of those, if they were exposed, they got some damage. But as long as that bulb feels firm, just cut off the f- frozen foliage. It'll put on new leaves and go right on with its uh, normal growth uh, as yeah. soon as the weather warms up a bit. Because this, this bulb was in the ground for the other big freeze. So, I guess this long as be. yeah, as long as it was, you know, got got a little water beforehand, uh, I'm sure it'll be just fine. Just cut off the ugly frozen part, and oh, yeah. uh, uh, a little fertilizer, liquid fertilizer, will certainly keep the roots happy too. Okay, thanks a lot, Bob. Always a pleasure, Robert. Thanks for the call this morning. Bye. Bye. All right, let's uh, see here. Yeah, we got time for the next commercial break. Let's talk to Pop. Good morning, Pop. Hey, happy New Year. And to you as well, sir. I hope so. <laughs> Listen, I have uh, some boxwood uh, hedges, and one of them, they're very strong. I've had them for 20 years, and they're always, but two of them uh, froze last year. Okay. And uh, I was wondering, I took I took them out, and there's a big hole in, in, in the hedge, uh, uh, you know, formation. Yeah. Can I plant? Uh, another one? Is Absolutely. Yeah. A- absolutely. But here's the thing. The boxwood hedges in front of my house are probably 100 years old. Uh, my house is well over 100 years. And I I, I truly, I, I know those things have probably been in there minimum of 80 years. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's 100 years. So wow. they are typically very long live shrubs. And so long as they got well watered, you know, before the hard freeze hit, there's no doubt that they're going to come out fine. Uh, it will be just fine for you to fill in those gaps. Uh, you'll probably want to start with a little bit bigger plant so it doesn't have as much catching up to do. And if you have had them for 20 years, what you almost certainly have is what we call Japanese boxwood. Right. Uh, there are yeah, there are some newer boxwoods out there that stay a little bit shorter, a little bit more compact, winter gem, baby gem, 
Um, there, there are some other real nice new varieties, but be careful that you're not getting them because they're never going to grow as big and they have a smaller and slightly different foliage. So be sure that what you're getting is a good old-fashioned Japanese boxwood, but uh, you plant them whenever you feel like digging a hole. There's, uh, you know, the sooner you plant them, they're not going to grow much until spring gets here above the ground, but the root system will grow through the winter months. So if you want a good afternoon project, um, you know, visit your favorite nursery and get yourself in a Japanese boxwood and get it in the ground. So we can't plant it. We can't plant them in the winter right now. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, this okay. is, you see, in our climate, typically summer weather is harder on plants than winter weather is. And so by planting during the cool months, we give those plants the maximum amount of time to get the roots established to get ready for summer. So uh, October, November, in my opinion, are the two best months of the year for planting. But uh, there's nothing at all wrong with putting woody shrubs in the ground. Now, tender perennials, uh-uh, not going to sell you any lantana or any you know thing like that uh, at this time of year. But uh, your boxwood can be planted. But here's the one thing you're going to have to give special consideration to, and that is your 20-year-old boxwood, they probably don't need water more than once a month. Your new boxwood that you put your water in are going to be have to water much more often until they get the roots established. So you're going to have two different water cycles. You're going to be watering those two new plants um, every few days. Uh, your old plants, yeah, you water them like you usually do, which, yeah. like I say, in mine, they get it about every six months because uh, they are. Pretty. Yeah. So the the big old ones, you go on with your regular schedule, but those new ones, you're going to have to. You're going to have to pay, pay special attention to. You know, if you get a new puppy in the house, you got to treat it a little bit differently than you do your old dogs. You got that right. All right, thank you very much. I was just wondering if I could do it now or, or wait a little while. But great, great question, Pop. I'm afraid I made a little work for you. The good news is you're going to have a beautiful day to get out and do it. looks like a, a real pretty stretch of weather for the next week or two, so uh, you get out and enjoy it. I appreciate it. All right, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right, let's talk about Green Grow Organics. Let's talk about uh, Sam Sitterly and company. And maybe one of your new New Year's resolutions is just to get your landscape in better shape, to have it look nicer throughout the summer months. And maybe you're not sure exactly what you need to do. Maybe you'd like to have an experienced pro who can come around periodically, basically stand at your side and say, look, this is what you need to do here, this is what you need to do over here. Well, that guy might very well be Sam Sitterly because he's been doing this for close to 40 years now. And I wouldn't be recommending him if he wasn't doing everything organically. But Sam's got the knowledge. He's got the, he just has a great, great business called Green Grow Organics. And uh, he's got, I know, hundreds, probably thousands of satisfied customers around this area. Uh, One lady that comes in calls him St. Sam (laughs) because she says he's done so much to keep her yard beautiful and healthy. But uh, if you're just realizing that things are popping up in your yard that you really have no idea what's happening or what to do about it, think about getting on uh, getting with uh, Sam. Uh, he can work a couple of different ways. He can, you know, do individual consultations or lots of folks we know have him come around once a month or once a quarter, whatever your needs are. And he's not the guy that's going to do your pruning or dig the holes for your new shrubs, but he does a lot of different things, excellent with compost tea application, and uh, just an all-around good guy with a very good reputation and 
lots and lots of years of experience. I think his website is back up. They were rebuilding it at one point, but you might check out greengroworganics.com, or you can always give him a call at 210-599-5565, 210-599-5565. Just remember the name, Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Going to be Tracy and Gilbert are going to be the next two callers. Do have a couple of open lines. Grab one if you'd like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. It's Tracy's turn. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Bob. I hope you had good holidays. Uh, they were pretty darn good, and uh, I'm I'm certainly enjoying going back to shorts weather for a little while. Although I'm just just afraid it's not going to last. But uh, we just get some good rain. There wouldn't very much be very much wrong with our South Texas world. Exactly, that's so true. I have two questions, but the first one is it's indirectly related to my yard. Okay, and I know you're really an expert with water. I live in the hill country. And we have a well and an aerobic system, um, septic system. Okay. I was told by the plumber, after we've had it for years and years, that our water softener should uh-huh. not be used because it's salt and it's going into our septic system. And it wastes like 50 gallons of water when it backwashes. So my question to you is, what about the saltless kind? Um, and then it sprays out on my yard because it's got salt. Right. You know, that that's a, a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if they have them, you know, up to standards because we, we call that black water. The water that comes out of your shower and your sink is called gray water. And that can certainly be, you know, that can be used anywhere. It's not going to be hard on your septic system or anything else. Um, but the, the black water does have to it has to be purified you have to take uh, the potential uh, pathogens out of it and there are you know modern sewer plants really good ones use UV light to do that I'm not sure that there are that there are UV light systems we certainly use them on rainwater catchment to make that water very very drinkable but um, again I I don't I haven't really kept up with the technology. I don't know if there is a UV system that is approved and, you know, your health department has to, you know, pass judgment on it, so to speak. Then, Well, but the hardness, but the hardness, that's yep. not going to work with hardness. Well, but um, it, it, it does... It, um, well, yeah, you're 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 right about that. Uh, what the the thing that I would suggest, and you might ask your your septic people if it's going to, you know, make a difference. Um, uh, if you use the potassium salt rather than the sodium salt, because sodium is what is really hard on plants, and your water softener will work just as well on potassium salt as it will on sodium salt. And it, mm-hmm. the sodium salt uh, costs less, and so it's what most people use. But uh, potassium chloride is much better for your body, and I would say is probably much better for your septic system um, than uh, you know than the old sodium salt is. But uh, 
The other thing that I will tell you is there's, there is a difference in water softeners. And you hear me talk about Kinetico, and one of the reasons I love Kinetico is it doesn't, you know, flush, so to speak. It doesn't recharge on a preset schedule. It only recharges when the rosin needs to be recharged. And in most cases, that Kinetico system is not going to recharge probably a third as often, you know, as a regular electronic system does. So you can really cut down on the, you know, amount of uh, material that's, you know, that is going into your, your septic tank and could be causing problems there. Um, when, you're, when you're simply not recharging the system, you know, nearly as often. And um, that, again, I would encourage you to also uh, to make use of your gray water where you can. And in, in, in a, an already built home, it's a little bit hard to do. But anytime you're looking at new construction, uh, be sure that you're, you don't, most of your gray water, you don't need to be running into your septic tank. Most of your gray water can be used elsewhere. Now, having said that, you have to have a certain volume of liquid go into a septic tank. And uh, I know when my business partner built her home, um, she, you know, she wanted all the shower water, all the, all the water that was gray water rather than black water. She wanted it going out on her plants and things. And uh, her septic guy said, oh, ma'am, you have to have a certain amount of water going into that tank to keep your septic system working and breaking down everything going into it. So you can't necessarily divert all the gray water elsewhere, but um, you can certainly cut down, you know, on the amount of water that you're, uh, softened water that you're, that you're putting down the, the black water system, so to speak. So I... I, I, like I say, I, I don't know that you can get away from having a water softener, but there are things that you can do uh, to be sure that that water is going to be less toxic, you know, to what's going into your septic system. The other suggestion that I would make is uh, Medina in particular, and I'm sure there are others out there. Medina makes a product. I don't talk about it a lot because obviously there are a lot more people interested in, in their agricultural products. But they make a good septic tank. Oh, I get, they call it an activator. And uh, aerobic system or standard system, I think it's a good idea periodically to add some of this stuff just to keep the microbes in your tank healthy. And um, I've, I've never... I've never been told by any of the septic guys that I talked to that uh, that the uh, softened water was that hard on a on a septic system. But uh, not, again, I, I can't claim to be an expert on septic tanks. I've had one for you know an awful lot of years. But in my home, I have soft water, you know, where I have my appliances that use water. But I just have well water everywhere else, and I fight the calcium like everybody else does. But I, I think there are things that you can certainly do to mitigate it without necessarily having to give up having softened water. I would I would look at the potassium salt. I would check with your soft water. Uh, with your uh, water softener company to be sure that your system will accept soft water. And if it's time for a new system, I sure would look at uh, Kinetico because uh, um, let me tell you, it's just it's the best system I've ever had. And uh, again, do what you can to limit the amount of softened water that you're likely to be putting down your block water system. That helps a lot. And then one real quick question. Also living in the hill country, I wanted to get a peek 
a peach tree and is it possible to raise a peach tree in a raised container because the soil is rock or the it's just rock <laughs> i what i would do is I would create a raised bed rather than a raised container, so to speak. I'd love to see you have good soil with solid sides around it, but I just assumed that you didn't have a plastic bottom on it because those roots, even in very rocky soil, those roots will find their way around the rocks and they will get down into whatever, you know, whatever soil you have. Uh, I had an old cousin one time that, I mean, he was truly the country boy that didn't care what his yard looked like. And, and his name was Bubba, if that tells you anything. But uh, he would pile up three old junk tires and fill them up with soil, and that's what he planted his fruit trees in. And he grew beautiful fruit trees. I think you can do something a little bit more attractive than that, but rather than actually have it in a container that limits where the roots can go, I would create a, a raised bed, whether you use the EcoVantage wood, whether you use cinder blocks, whether you use natural hill country rock. But I would build up a raised bed, and then you can grow beautiful peaches. Now, you do need to be sure that you always have at least two trees because peaches do best with cross-pollination. And what, what part of the hill country are you in, Tracy? Leon Springs. Okay, then you're you're in about a 650-hour chill zone. I would be looking for a peach that has a chilling requirement somewhere between 600 and 750 hours. I don't have my fruit tree guide in front of me, but um, if you're dealing with Phanix or if you're dealing with a good nursery, uh, they'll be able to tell you, or you can probably do it online. You can look up fruit tree varieties. Uh, you're going to be looking at varieties like John Fanick. You're going to be looking at June Gold. You're going to be looking. There are a lot of good fruit trees to choose from. Um, you want to choose whether you want a uh, white meat peach or a yellow meat peach. You want to choose whether you want a freestone or a clingstone. But uh, the second most important thing after being sure it has good soil, or maybe the most important thing, is having one that gets the that has the appropriate chill hour rating. Because if you it's, you could say, well, I'm going to plant a real grand special or something. It only takes 450 hours. Well, what happens is as soon as that tree has fulfilled its 450-hour requirement, first worm spell that comes out and blooms, and then it freezes back. And you say, well, I'll just be on the safe side, and I'll get a 1,000-hour peach like they grow in Fredericksburg. But that tree's never going to get enough chilling to bloom and produce fruit. So peaches are the pickiest of all trees as far as being important to select a variety that matches the amount of the number of chill hours and that's to find the amount of weather below 45 degrees 20 degrees is no better than 44 degrees but you you okay. you will want to get a tree that needs somewhere between 600 and 750 chill hours but uh um peaches are one of the most delicious things you can grow the only other thing you're going to have to do is figure out how to keep the raccoons to getting from them before you do <laughs> but uh, i would highly encourage you to grow you know peaches plums figs uh uh, apricots don't do so well here, but uh, the Asian persimmons grow absolutely beautifully. You, you can have a very nice fruit orchard uh, uh, even in your thin soils out there. Okay, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the information. Really great questions, and uh, you call me if you have any more. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Tracy. Thank you. All right, let's got to get a break in here, and then we'll be back to phone calls. I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. 
And that is so much fun for me. Had the great visit not long ago with Danny Bowes from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And they are simply a company with a heart. They they want to do the job that you hope for from your roof. They want to give you the best material out there. They want to give you superior workmanship and just the best roof your home could ever have. Their roofs are truly lifetime quality roofs. I have one of the roofs on my home. I have for many years now. Uh, they put the roof on our shades of green here quite a few years ago and our roofs have stood up the hail and lots of freezes and lots of wind and lots of all those things that beat up roofs and that's why you hear other people talking about oh get your roof inspected and you know replace it every 20 years and our shingles are guaranteed blah 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 well southwest metal roofing systems gives you the best warranty in the industry because they simply know you're not going to have to do anything your insurance company most insurance companies actually give a discount on your homeowner's insurance with one of their roofs plus you get a roof that is very very energy efficient most of all, most important of all, you get a really good-looking roof. You have your choice of colors. You also have your choice of styles. There are roofs that Southwest Metal Roofing System installs that look exactly like ceramic tile or slate or shake shingles, but they're actually the lifetime quality metal. Learn more. It's just a great company to do business with. And, again, I have so many friends that have been so pleased with the Southwest Metal Roofing System's roofs. Number is 210-822-6868. It's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. To gardening. Looks like we're going to be talking to Gilbert and Stephen and Minnie. Gilbert's up first. Good morning, Gilbert. Hello, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a... Uh, Plant problem this morning. I have a mold problem. I have a, okay. a property in Padre Island, and they're just digging up my yard big time. What? Any suggestions? Okay. Well, let's be sure first of all they are moles. Are you seeing mounds on top of the ground, or do you just see the little kind of pushed up areas where they tunnel back and forth? There's mounds on on the on the ground. Then you've got gophers, not moles. Um, moles don't. Moles don't push any dirt up on top. Moles, uh, uh, moles in many ways are less of a problem because they eat insects. They don't eat your plant roots. A lot of people don't like them because they make little tunnels back and forth, and they're not very attractive. But gophers, on the other hand, are big, big plant eaters. And I tell you, the place to start, um, and and I, I eliminated gophers from my property when I first moved out there many years ago, and we don't have many of them in the hill country, and I've never had to go after them again. But okay. I've had a bunch of people tell me that they have, in effect, well, you can't really say poison, but they have killed them with chewing gum. For whatever reason, they seem to have an you know, a, a sweet tooth for juicy fruit gum, and for whatever reason, it kills them. Uh, I have always used traps, uh, and it's not a live trap. It's a snap trap that kills them very effectively. But uh, first thing I, I need to do is to tell you how you find out where their tunnel is. And go out, and, and you know, a, a gopher's going to produce usually a new mound every night. But you'll be able to tell which is the newest mound because, you know, it'll be fresh dirt rather than dried dirt. And okay. if you study that mound, it generally will be slightly heart-shaped. And you go up to whatever represents the, the little cleft in the top of the heart, 
dig down at that point. Take your shovel and dig down, and you'll find their tunnel. And it's going to run two directions, and you don't know which direction the gopher's in, because he could be in either end of that tunnel. But if you want to okay. start with the easy thing, get yourself some juicy fruit chewing gum. Handle it only by the foil. You don't want to get your scent on it, and you can't chew it first. You got to use fresh stuff. But but you know, stick half a stick, half a stick, or stick a full stick in in the tunnel each direction, and see if that gets rid of Mister or Ms. Gopher. The good news is because. Um, they produce so many mounds, you're looking out there and thinking, man, I've got an army of gophers out there. But uh, my college days, I, I trapped a lot of gophers because one of the professors I worked with was using them for research. And we could take a five-acre field in East Texas that had probably a 1,000 gopher mounds on it, and we'd find no more than five or six gophers in the whole place. So this is not its not like rock squirrels or something like that that you've got 50 of them out there. You've probably got no more than you know, two to four gophers digging up your yard, so it's not going to be a big, big job to get rid of them. If the if the chewing gum doesn't work, go to a good feed store or go online. Uh, there is what they call a Victor Gopher trap, and uh, it's it's a uh, it's an it's an interesting flat trap that. Um, has like a, um, this would be a lot easier on television than it is on the radio, but imagine one end of it, there's a plate, because when you open a gopher's hole, when you open their tunnel, they sense the change in humidity, and they come moving through the tunnel, pushing a mound of dirt in front of them to seal off the opening. So this trap is made so when that gopher, when the dirt the gopher is pushing, pushes that little pedal down, the business end of the trap that kills the gopher is about four inches back, and it instantly skewers and kills the gopher. So it's a very specialized little trap. Uh, they last forever. I've probably still got a pair of them hanging up in my barn. But you always tie a cord around it so that if it doesn't kill the gopher instantly, that it doesn't drag it off back halfway through your yard and you're out there with a metal detector trying to find it. Um, we always used a piece of cord, maybe 18 inches long, and you tie your two traps together and then put a stick in the middle of, of where it is and rat, loop that cord around at one time and then put your gopher trap in each end of the tunnel, usually within 30 minutes to an hour. The gopher will sense the opening and come up and get himself caught and killed. So um, that's sort of getting rid of gophers 101, but they are very destructive. They'll eat a lot of plant roots. Um, my business partner and I were hiking, I think it was in California one time. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of one of the old Chevy Chase movies. We walk quietly, and we walk you know, a lot of, lot of different natural areas. And we looked up on the trail ahead, and we actually saw a plant being sucked down into the ground about an inch at a time. I don't remember Groundhog Day or one of those ones. Uh, there was a funny movie about that. But that gopher was actually pulling that plant an inch at a time down into the ground, and it was disappearing right before our eyes. So I understand the damage they could do, but that's, that's sort of gopher control 101. I hope that helps you. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, okay, so when I put the, the juicy fruit gum in the tunnel, do I cover the tunnel? No, no. You you want the tunnel open because you want that gopher to come back trying to seal it up again, and he's going to find the gum and eat it. Okay. All right. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. Well, I'm going to try that. 
You give me an update on it because I I can't tell you how many gophers Dr. Stalkup and I trapped out of East Texas <laughs> a number of years ago. I won't tell you how many years ago that was, but uh, we became quite expert at catching gophers and moles. If you ever have moles, it's a different trap you use, but uh, I don't think you have moles down in your sand out there. It's uh, But uh, at least we know what the culprit is, and you know what to do about it now. Yeah, so the, you said that the gopher, you'll see the tunnel on top of the ground? No, not under. When you get up to that cleft in the top of the heart, you dig down no more than six inches, and you'll see the tunnel go in each direction. The tunnel's going to be about an inch, inch and a half underground. Okay, but but I'm saying on the moles, the moles. You'll yeah, see the, the moles, tunnel. the moles. You will see a little dirt pushed up. You'll see like a little raised roadway in effect pushed up uh, all through the garden. But I, I've never seen moles, and uh, they're not going to really do any damage to, to really worry about where you are. So you get out and have a good day. Call me if you have more questions. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening and Back to the phone lines. Uh, next two callers are going to be Stephen and Minnie. Stephen's in line first. Good morning, Stephen. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Hey, uh, quick question. I've got two, we'll call them raised beds. They're only about, you know, they're just a limestone um, height. Okay. Uh, they're about uh, three feet wide and let's say 15 feet long, and I was thinking of turning it into a mini orchard and pu- putting a uh, peach tree in each, like, corner. They're about, okay. each one of these is like, they're about four feet apart. Uh-huh. Can I do that, or can I get six trees in those things? If 15 feet long, you might get three trees in but uh, it's not going to be wide enough to, in effect, plant two rows of trees because uh, those trees, you know, it. They're, your, your trees ought to be spread out at least four or five feet. If you want to really see the individual trees, they're going to have to be spread out further than that. But two feet wide is, even if you zigzag them, that's not really enough room to have, uh, you know, to have six trees in there. I'd, I'm going to say probably three is going to be the maximum you, you really could get. <laughs> my my solution well, to that problem is just to tell you to go build another bed. But uh, <laughs> well, the beds are the beds are like four feet apart. Oh, okay. Well, if we're so, talking, if we're talking edge outside edge, yeah. If we're talking more than one bed, yeah, yeah. Put three in each. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh... What is the typical to put between them and, like, if, if there was only one bed? You, um, you say? If you want to be able to walk all the way around the tree, you need to plant them 10 feet apart, maybe even 12 feet apart. Uh, it, you, you would put one in each end of the bed, uh, and that would be That's all you'd put in there. Be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, I, uh, I don't have time to be monitoring the... Stuff that dies from cold or drought. I'm just <laughs> well. If you keep it, if you keep it watered, uh, you won't have to worry about drought. And peach trees are pretty darn hardy. It, uh, it. I've not seen any damage. Um, the the occasional late freeze can can do some damage to the trees, but peach trees aren't aren't going to freeze to death in the even in the kind of weather that that we've been having. So so how many of these beds do you have? There's there are two beds. They're about 
three by 15, and each bed is about four feet apart. I mean, they, okay. they run parallel to each other. Okay. You know, if you, if you, if you want to space them out, um, in one bed, I put a tree on each end, and in the second bed, I put one tree in the middle. That would really uh, that would really spread them out. Now it's it's not going to hurt the trees. You're going to have to do a little more pruning, you know, when it's when you're thinning the when you're thinning the growth out in the winter or spring to you know get your your maximum peach crop. But um, if you don't mind being a little crowded and pruning a little bit harder, uh, you could easily put you know a tree at each end of each bed. But if you if you really want to have the easiest as far as working around and pruning, you know, uh, as little or as be easier to get to them to prune, uh, just one of those beds, put one on either end, and the second bed, just put one right in the middle. And uh, that's, you know, that that's going to give you the best spacing you could you could have. Okay, got it. I was going to actually put one in, you know, each corner, so to speak, yeah. you know, if I thinking of them as one big square and then that way i could dabble with a tomato or a cauliflower in the middle. <laughs> well you could dabble if you if you wanted to put something else in there you could put one of the dwarfer figs there's one called little miss figgy um there are other things that you could plant you could plant well to get much production from it um there, there are not a lot of other fruits that you could plant but uh, yeah, you can certainly plant vegetables. You could plant an artichoke or two, you know, in between. If you're creative, uh, you can harvest a lot of good things to eat out of that area. But uh, uh, consider this: if you have the if you have the time and the energy, put a third bed in, and then just do it like uh, you know the five on a pair of dice: uh, a tree in each corner. That's going to spread them out a little bit more, and then one right in the middle. Uh, of the middle bed, and uh, that way you're going to have um, you, you would have the maximum amount of production and the minimum amount of work once you get it once you get that third bed made. That's kind of where I'm at because I don't have the time to monitor the <laughs> caulif- cauliflower that dies, replant them if it. Yeah, well, I unfortunately I understand that way too much. I one of my favorite sayings, and somewhere I've got that little sign that says. Uh, the good Lord put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of things, and right now I'm so far behind I'll never die. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, very good. Well, well that's did, all you, I had. did did you hear my conversation with the previous caller about the importance of selecting peaches according to how I, what what zone I, you're in? Yep, I did. I already have a. I live at sixteen oh four and two eighty one. I have a. I think it's a La Feliciana that I got from Fanix and. Yeah. Uh, I was going to go get maybe another one of those, and you know, if I'm going to plant four, try to mix it up a little. Well, here's here's the thing that you can do, and there are some others. You could plant Sam Houston. You could plant John Fannick is a great peach. It's actually a seedling selection from La Feliciana. You could probably plant June Gold. But you can choose your peaches, as I was mentioning to, I think it was Martha, the uh, yellow meat or white meat, freestone or clingstone. But you can also look at ripening dates. And if you are interested in making peach cobbler or peach preserves or, you know, whatever, you want to choose peaches that, that ripen at about the same time so that you can get a whole bunch of fruit. If you plan to eat your peaches fresh, 
Uh, you can choose peaches that produce as early as June or as late as August, and so select trees that are going to have their fruit ripen over a period of time, and that way you'll have the maximum number of fresh peaches. So um, there's just a lot goes a lot of planning goes into getting the results you're looking for, and with a fruit tree, you know you're looking at an investment of time. Uh, to get that tree up and producing. And you are going to have to take time to do your proper thinning uh, every January or February, but let me tell you what, it's, it's worth the effort. I think I can handle that. <laughs> well, you get out and do I it might, then, and you can call me if you have more questions. I think I might uh, time that ripening to keep the squirrels, so I don't know if the best would be to have them all ripen at the same time, and then they can't scavenge it enough <laughs> give up on that idea they'll call every relative they have in the county and uh and the possums and coons are the same way i always say it's kind of like corn that uh, those guys invented the internet a long time before al gore thinks he did and they know when your fruit is about to ripen and you saw one squirrel out there yesterday you're going to see 15 of them out there eating eating on them today so uh when you get to that point, I'll help you with some critter control too. So, <laughs> suggestions. That's so, why I'm, uh, planting, that's yeah. why I'm planting four also because the one tree, one tree got swiped one year, and I was like, "That bastards." <laughs> <laughs> I know the sentiment. You get out and have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Stephen. Good morning, Stephen. Stephen, are you with us? No. Uh, okay, he dropped her. Okay, then let's, uh, what about Minnie? Is Minnie next in line? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> okay, good morning, Minnie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I, I have two oak trees in the front, and I would like to send them out to get more light on my okay. yard. Okay. Is this a good time to do it? And what do I have to remember after it's cut? Do we need to dress it with um, wound care or something? Or what do what, I need to know? What kind of oak trees do you have, Minnie? Are they live well, oaks or red oaks? or live, live oaks, live oaks. Okay. You do have to trim, you do have to coat every every cut that you make or every cut that whoever's helping you with it, whoever makes those cuts every cut needs to be treated even if it's the size of a pencil or if it's the size mm -hmm. of you know a small pipe uh, a lot of these i don't don't grace them with the name of arborists they're just hack whack and stack mm -hmm. tree trimmers but uh, they tell you oh you don't have to paint the little ones but that's simply not true all the wounds mm -hmm. have to be painted but you do not have to use any special product it doesn't have to be wound dressing or tree goop or anything like that um, just uh, any common old spray paint from the hardware store is going to do it. Because oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You, only, mm -hmm. you only have to keep that wound protected from the insects for about 10 days. And uh, mm -hmm. then the wound dries to the point that it is no longer infectable. But um, mm -hmm. uh, it is very important in this area. If you lived uh, way north uh, where oak wilt is not so common, I wouldn't be so adamant about it, but we have so much oak wilt in this area. And, you know, I always I always get people say, well, what about thunderstorms? And what about other things that create ruins on the trees? A um, mm -hmm. very interesting thing happens when the damage is caused by an animal or by a hailstorm or something like that. I'm, I'm 
afraid I can't explain it completely. David Bonds semi-explained it to me, but I've got to sit down and have a real skull session with him sometime. But um, damage, physical damage, is not the same as what a chainsaw or a pruning saw does to it. So uh, mm-hmm. whoever helps you with this, be sure that they do coat each wound. Now, if you had a bur oak or a chinkapin oak or a Monterey oak, these oaks that are in the white oak family, they're not badly yeah. affected by oak wilt. So those you would not have to, to seal the wounds. But live oaks okay. and red oaks, also what people call Spanish oaks, on those, I feel that it is important uh, simply because of the amount of oak wilt, the amount of uh, you know potential spores we have out there. Uh, mm-hmm. If it's a valuable tree, I think it's worth the effort to try to protect it. Okay, and you did say any spray paint would be okay, whether it's sure. red, purple, or whatever. Yeah, you many you could do it with nail polish if you wanted to. Any <laughs> okay. anything anything that keeps the, the you see the the way that the the spores that cause this fungus disease we call oak wilt, uh, ceratostitis, mm-hmm. uh, are carried by a little insect called a nitidula beetle or an ambrosia beetle. And mm-hmm. they, their normal food is to feed on plant sap. And if mm-hmm. they have been feeding in an area where they get the spores, a tree that's uh, a red oak tree that's died of oak wilt produces what's called a spore mat. And the sap beetles pick up these spores on their yeah. bodies. And then when they mm-hmm. go off and find the tree, the wound that somebody made on Minnie's tree, uh, they go in and start feeding on that. Mm-hmm. This is how they transfer mm-hmm. the disease around. So all you're mm-hmm. doing is keeping, potentially keeping those little insects away from it. And uh, mm-hmm. I have people tell me all the time, they say, well, what if I do it on a really cold day when there are no insects around? Well, I think this mm-hmm. year has been a real great example where we can go from 20 degrees to 70 degrees in about three mm-hmm. days. And remember that those wounds can be infected for about eight or nine days. So um, mm-hmm. I just don't trust the weather. I've I've seen people mm-hmm. knock on wood. Um, I've kept oak wilt out of my property. I do the prevention with the cornmeal treatment and all. And I've but I've had neighbors around me that have literally lost every oak tree on their property to oak wilt. Mm-hmm. So I think it's worth the effort to do everything you can to stop them. And we can talk another time about the things you can do to prevent oak wilt. But if you're going to mm-hmm. trim them, if you're going to use a saw on them. Um, coating that wound, I think, is going to be important. Well, I really don't want to trim them, but I put solar lights in my yard, and the solar lights don't get enough light to light up in the evening. So that's <laughs> why I have to. Um, I didn't think about that. Well, that's why I, I have will, to trim. I I will tell you, um, and I I can't see your yard, of course, but. Remember that you can hang those solar lights for th- from things other than your trees. They, um, there are some absolutely beautiful kind of wrought iron little. They call them a crane, or a, it's like coming like a oh a, a piece of metal that comes up and then makes a general bend and then has like a little hook on the end of it. People use them for bird feeders, but you can get mm-hmm. them up to eight feet long, and they are perfect for hanging your little solar lantern on. And um, and you can move them around to the point. I've got I've got solar lanterns underneath one of my trees, but I was able to position it in an area that it got enough mm-hmm. to to light up beautifully, even though it's under the shade of the tree. And uh, mm-hmm. so there there are are other options than uh, than surgery, so to speak. 
Yeah. As, as Dr. Kirby says on, on animals, surgery is the last option, not the first. So you take a look out there and see if there might be another way to get uh, enough sunlight to your solar, solar powered things. And, uh, um, good luck with it. And I, I appreciate your call. I enjoy visiting with you always and hope you have a great new year. And you too, Bob. Thank you so much for your help. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And let's see here. Uh, Jimmy, I guess we better get that first break in. We'll be back and visit with Susan and Patrick in just a minute. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Susan, Patrick will be my next two callers, and Susan is first. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. How are you? I'm off to a good start. It's uh, <laughs> it's I, I don't mind warm weather in January. There's some people think that it has to be cold, but I kind of enjoy short sleeves and some days uh, short pants in this kind of weather. So uh, I'm I'm doing fine and looking forward to a, a great day and uh, submitting as much of it outside as possible. <laughs> well, um, Bob, I have St. Augustine grass, and mm-hmm. is it okay to mow it in the winter? Does it go dormant, or with this crazy weather, you know, it, <laughs> well, my, my grass is getting a little crazy. Yes, everybody's grass has. Um, it doesn't go truly dormant. Very few things in our area grow truly dormant. But as long as you're not mowing it down too low, I mean, years ago we we, you know, thought that you needed to scalp that lawn down and get rid of all that, you know, frozen, ugly grass up on top. And that's, you simply don't want to do that. Even those old dead grass blades give you some degree of protection from the cold. And, you know, they you, you never remove them. They break down and add nu- nutrients to the soil. So uh, nothing at all wrong with mowing your St. Augustine at this time of year, but don't set it down to the lowest setting. Go ahead and you know, mow it up fairly high just to, oh, there's a humorist that I love, and he, he refers to a haircut as a little tidy up. <laughs> if you want to give your yard a little tidy up, and if you want to something funny, listen to Bill Bryson sometime, forget one of his books. But uh, anyway, a little tidy up is no problem, but uh, we don't ever really scalp it down because St. Augustine has runners on top of the ground rather than down under. Bermuda grass, mm-hmm. if you want to cut that down as close to the soil as you can, uh, then you feel free to go ahead and do that to your Bermuda grass, but you will ruin your St. Augustine yard if you do that to St. Augustine. So, you know, keep that mower at, at least at its medium setting, and if it's going to make things look nicer, get out there and mow. If you have any dead spots from the drought or from grubs or whatever else, there's still time if you want to sprinkle a little bit of uh, ryegrass out there and water it. You'll have green grass in about three days' time if uh, if you if you need to do something to improve the appearance. But anyway, long answer to a short question. Um, just uh, mow if you like, but uh, don't, uh, don't, don't mow it down too low. Don't scalp it. Okay. Yeah. And then what about uh, watering? Should we continue to water it? Absolutely. Just uh, you don't have to do it as often. Uh, warm months of the year, <laughs> and we're pretty warm weather now, but uh, usually in the winter months, we water about once every three weeks. Um, it, the way the weather is right now, I'm probably going to be watering maybe once every two weeks, 
But the thing to do is to get out there and just, you know, take your index finger and feel that soil. When when you can stick your finger down in and the upper inch or so of soil is dry, it's time to water. But my guess is probably going to be sometime around every 14 days this time of year. If we if we go back to a, I never use the word normal when I talk about Texas weather, but if we go back to a more typical January where we're looking at lows in the low 40s or upper 30s and highs in the 50s, yeah, we can probably go three weeks between waterings. But, uh, you know, this week it was 81 day on my car thermometer and 78 yesterday, I think, when I was driving home. And uh, that's, you know, that's late spring weather. And so we're we're going right. to be watering more often uh, and lesser until we get some good rainfall, which uh, especially those of us with pastures that we can't water by hand we're sure we're sure missing what mother nature usually gives us <laughs> that's right okay well i really, really appreciate it then you have a good day you do the same i appreciate the call okay. thank you ah let's see let's just go right ahead then and move on to patrick good morning patrick it's patrick are you with us here. yeah good morning yeah uh, well, everything seems to be just peachy today because those are the questions that we're fielding. Uh, <laughs> Love a man with a little humor early in the morning. It's kind of fruity, but, you know, what can I say? I just had my coffee so it could get worse. But uh, I, uh, I called you a couple, three weeks ago about uh, peach tree transplanting a full-grown one, and uh-huh. I did that. I uh, put some of that Fox Farm cocoa bop in the bottom of the hole that mm-hmm. the panics recommended and then i set the tree on it and all the roots when i pulled it out uh it didn't bring any dirt with it and i planted it in stone and soil soil uh-huh. and the depth the the box that it's in we talked about those butter blocks right five foot long and 18 inches and 18 inches well i double stacked them so it's 36 inches deep good soil uh-huh. the problem the tree had was is when I dug it up, one side is too much limestone, and the other side is pretty good dirt, and that's okay. why it wasn't producing very well. Uh-huh. So anyway, long story short, I transplanted it. It's pretty firm in the ground, mm-hmm. and uh, I did it right at, on the last day of the freeze uh, okay. before the temperatures went up. So I'm wondering, uh, is there anything else I need to do to it to uh, help it? I've been watering it so that I can get some of that composted uh, tea down into the uh, root system, and uh, I just want to know if there's anything else I need to do with it. The most important thing that you could do for that tree is to take your hose and once, twice, ten times a day, take your hose and just spray the water over the branches because uh, you've got a compromised root system. As careful as you were, you still did a lot of damage to the roots. So at this point, uh, your peach tree is going to be absorbing a lot more water through the bark than it is through its root system. So water enough to keep the soil moist but there is no way that you will ever keep the top of the tree too moist when uh, i worked with my old friend and mentor alton grimm when we got in bare root tree bare root fruit trees alton had me out there six times a day with that hose just spraying up and down the trunks of all those trees because that's what's gonna pull your tree through until it gets some roots reestablished. so there's no way you're going to overdo that you every opportunity you have uh, spray down the just spray down the the trunk and the limbs and everything. Get as much water as you can spread on the bark of the tree because that's what's going to get it through this shocky period. Okay, uh, uh, and on on the second hand on that tree, uh, the deer uh, rub some of the bark off on 
one of the uh, sides of the of okay. the tree. How much damage do the deer uh, uh, rub and deer rub do to these trees? And do I need to put some paint over it or what? Um, if you, it's just on one side, not a big issue. Uh, if they rub the bark off all the way around, that can actually kill the tree. That's called girdling. But if they've just damaged okay. one side, if you go to Howard Garrett's website, which is uh, dirtdoctor.com, uh, you right. will find a recipe for what he calls tree goop, G-O-O-P. Uh, mix up some of that tree goop and uh, put over that wounded area, and that will certainly help the tree. What I do, because I live in deer country too, if I am you know, planting a tree in an unfenced area that the deer can get to, I take, you know, depending on the size of the tree, two or three T-posts, just old iron T-posts, and I'll put them up against the trunk of the tree and put a piece of baling wire around the top, piece of baling wire around the bottom. Obviously, how many uh, posts it takes depend on, depends on the diameter of the trunk of the tree. But deer do not like rubbing those horns on hard metal. And I will put those on, you know, early in the fall and pull them off in mid-spring when the deer aren't marking their territories and rubbing the velvet off their antlers. A lot of times people think they're rubbing velvet when all they're doing is leaving their scent on the trees, but it's just as damaging to the tree in either way. But uh, that's my simple solution. Rather than trying to build a cage around them or something like that, it's just uh, on an average tree, three or four T-posts, you know, on in the late spring or on in the early fall and off in the late spring. Okay. Um, next question is, I have uh, uh, two avocado trees that I bought. Uh, they're in the, they're in containers. They're probably about four foot tall at this point. <clears throat> I put them in the greenhouse. Um, it's a small greenhouse. It's 10 by 10 sure. uh, during the freeze. Good. And they've got all these little buds and nodules on them like they're getting ready to, I don't know, maybe, maybe <laughs> I need a plant psychologist to convince them not to bloom yet because it's not really spring. But uh, what what uh, what do I need to do to, to, do I need to trim some of those or do I need to leave them alone? No, I'd, I'd just leave them alone if they do indeed come into bloom. Um, I mean, move them out. If they come into bloom, you'd love for the... Uh, bees to pollinate the flowers so that you get some fruit. Just I wouldn't put them in the ground yet because we're certainly not out of the woods for having potentially damaging weather. But um, right. there's uh, the tree's a little confused, but the whole world's a little confused right now. So um, there, there's no way to really slow it down. Once it's decided it's time to bloom, unless you had a way to reduce the temperature inside that greenhouse back down to about 45 degrees, that would delay it. But you can't do that, and uh, and you don't really need to. We're just going to have to see what Mother Nature does. You have the advantage of having them in containers where you can move them. The folks that have them in the ground and are watching them bud out are just you know shaking their heads and praying that... <laughs> <laughs> the weather doesn't get real cold again, but uh, I, I would just fertilize them. I would water them. I would leave them out in the sunshine, and if we're looking at a heavy frost or a hard freeze, just stick them back in your handy little 10 by 10 greenhouse. Right. Well, my, my greenhouse is a little unusual because I, I bought some uh, windows off of Craigslist, those louvered windows yeah. are yeah. so uh -huh. tall, and you turn the crank, and you can open and close it. But um, I was wondering... Um, on these, would it be best to leave them in the containers? Because I've been doing some research, and they said that you can just keep them in containers, or is that a bad idea? 
Well, the tree can get bigger. Obviously, the bigger the root system it has, the better it's going to grow, the more fruit it's going to produce. Uh, on the other hand, as we've learned, you know, the so-called Mexican avocados uh, are more cold-hardy. They can typically take it down into the low 20s without damage. But as we've learned the past three years, it seems like we're getting colder winters more often. And even the Mexican avocados were, that were in the ground were pretty badly hurt a couple of weeks ago when we had, you know, that 10 or 12 degrees in the hill country and, you know, down in the teens uh, in the san antonio area so it's up to you uh the bigger the root system a tree has the more resilient it's going to be in uh you know in especially dry weather the bigger the root system has the more fruit you're going to have the better the quality of the fruit is going to be but i just you can't trust the weather if you if you can keep it and you don't want to move a little small tree into a huge container but if you can gradually move it up you could grow a mature producing avocado tree uh, in, you know, one of those molasses tubs. Of course, it's going to weigh 300 pounds. You're going to have to have a trolley or something to move it around on, and you might be expanding your, and your greenhouse sounds interesting. I'm going to look for it on the pages of Southern Living one of these days because <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's worthy of somebody doing a story about you. But uh, the trees are going to get too big for that 10 by 10 structure, so... That's the other side. It would be, you know, certainly safest to grow them in pots, but 10 by 10 isn't going to cut it if you get two or three big avocado trees. Does that help right. you? I, I've, got, I've got two of them. I just put them in there to, to, to get them out of the... Oh, absolutely. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be alive today if you didn't, so you did the right thing. So, well, I got. I think that's probably the, the, the best thing to do. You mentioned a dolly. I noticed you guys have some of those those uh they look like uh dollies at your place where you move big pot plants where do you get oh, yeah. those um you can probably and you're talking about the little two-wheel guy we we call a plant truck um right just yeah you, you'll get them from an arbor supply company you can probably google and uh uh you'll find um golly i'd I know we don't buy them locally. I'm sure maybe A.M. Leonard or somewhere like that uh, might be the company we get them from, but uh, you simply get them to, uh, from an Arbor Supply Company. Yeah, we've pretty much gone crazy around here with gardening and chickens. And, uh, <laughs> no, you got that wrong. You, you've you kept from going crazy by doing that. Uh, the rest of the world's gone crazy around you, but you're, you're, you're probably the sanest person in your neighborhood. So <laughs> in my opinion, well, you're doing a very good thing. Well, you know, you know, you're in the, you know, you're in the plant growing business when you go to tractor supply to buy special boots to work in. <laughs> And that's not a bad thing. But uh, you call me anytime I can help, and uh, good luck with the project. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, we'll get a break out of the way here, and Carolyn will be up next. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Carolyn is up next, and it'll be Ron. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome back. <laughs> well, thank you. It's uh, I haven't gone anywhere, but uh, I have to admit that uh, New Year's and Christmas weekends, it was nice not having my Saturday morning alarm go off at 3 in the morning. So uh, 
I'm, but I'm, I'm glad to be back. I miss visiting with you guys. Okay, I have. I'm I'm trying to plan ahead. I uh, I need uh, the names of uh, uh, an acorn and a, a zucchini squash that are bush varieties because um, I usually plant a tatumi and I can use them when they're young for sure, like a sure. zucchini and older ones. But it, they take up too much of my garden. Yeah, so they, uh, I'm going to try doing bush varieties for those for the uh, acorn and the uh, zucchini. Well, your zucchini is simply called bush zucchini is the variety that I usually plant. And uh, it is a green zucchini. Remember, there are yellow and white zucchinis as well. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The, the mm-hmm. seed is simply sold as a bush zucchini. I am not aware of a bush acorn squash. I, In fact, I don't know any of the winter squashes, which is what... Uh, what we would call the acorn squash because it is, you know, slow. Uh, it, it takes a long time for that squash to grow and ripen, uh, two to three times as long as your zucchini will. And I don't know. You might try, uh, oh, golly, Johnny's. You might try uh, Baker Creek is uh, one of the better seed companies that I know of that uh, has a lot of organic things. But uh I don't know a, a bush acorn variety. All the ones I've ever grown have been uh, pretty long vines. Oh, okay. But the bush I zucchini, I had... yeah, the bush zucchini is great. It produces lots and lots of squash and uh, a very compact little plant. So uh, that, that's a. It, it certainly is a space saver in the garden, so to speak. And uh, there, there what? are, you know, there's another one. Uh, there are cucumbers in the same way. There's a cucumber called Space Master. But uh, but just bush zucchini is the only name I've seen on those seed packs. But uh, that that's a zucchini that I've grown and liked very much. Okay, well I went online looking yesterday and I saw a Ford Hook and a Black Beauty of zucchinis. Yeah, and, both uh, those I'll are pretty big. <coughs> those are what? Those are both pretty big. But they they're a bush variety, right? Um. Uh, my black beauties, I would sure call them a whole lot more like a vine. What, what, you know, what you can technically call a bush is just what we call the internodal distance. The space between the leaves on the stem is much shorter, is much smaller uh, in a bushy type plant. Now, um, black beauty is, I would call it compact, but I wouldn't call it bush. There are some that are. Uh, that are, you know, much, much smaller than Black Beauty overall and still give you good production. But uh, I, I'm going to call that a compact variety, but I'm not going to go all the way to calling it a bush variety. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll just keep looking then. And I, I went to the bush, but uh, a bush uh, zucchini, uh, I didn't find anything that just called it bush zucchini. It called, I, I had a lot of hits on Ford Hook and Black Beauty and I, you know, I, I, I wish I had a portable broadcast unit on my head. I'd run in and look at our seed rack, although I don't know we've got much of our spring seed in. Um, you might give it thirty days till we finish getting all our spring seed in, and then just call us here at Shades of Green. One of us okay. run and look at the seed rack, and we can tell you. Um, let me make one other suggestion to you that might help. It's a bit more work, but. Um, if you get some old nursery containers, uh, 15 gallon, even 30 gallon or 45 gallon, and grow your acorn squash in those, and you kind of have to think in three dimensions here. 
But if you have a squash that's growing out across the top of the container and then hanging 20, 24 inches down to the ground, it's not going to take up as much room as it would if it were flat spreading out on the ground. And you can actually mm-hmm. grow a more compact plant by kind of making it uh, two-dimensional or making it three-dimensional rather than two-dimensional. If that, if you're, I, I hope I'm painting a mental picture there for you. But you can plant a plant that would normally spread out over a bigger area. You can keep it more contained if it's in a raised container where part of that growth is going horizontally, but part of it is also growing vertically. So you're getting the production you're looking for without taking up as much space in the garden. And I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I mean, how many gallons is that uh, container? The biggest you can find. You know, 15-gallon is a standard nursery can, but uh, these tree growers today, they use... Uh, 30-gallon or even 45-gallon plastic containers. Um, you might be able to find some of the empty molasses tubs that uh, the feed stores sell, the dry, um, uh, the the molasses cake stuff that they uh, make uh, for as a lick kind of feed for cattle and sheep and goats and things like that. Uh, I know around here we have some feed stores that give them away. Some of them sell the empty things for $5 a piece or something, but... Uh, uh, I know a lot of people that are using those for container gardens very, very successfully for fruit trees as well as for things. Uh, because quite frankly, you know, lots of gardeners are getting up in years and are not able to bend over quite as easily as they were at a younger age. So there there are many advantages sometimes to growing in a container that's already two feet off the ground, so to speak. Okay. Thank you. God, I appreciate the call. It's always good to talk to you, and thank you. Goodbye. All right. uh, Let's get our last break of the hour in here, Jimmy, and uh, then Ron will be up next. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening, and uh, let's go back to the phone lines and talk to Ron. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, sir. uh, I've been... Uh, starting my my plants, my tomato plants indoors. I have a workshop, and I built a framing device. And I hang grow lights. Uh, they're on heat pads, the four uh-huh. packs or six packs. And yeah. I have grow lights on a cross member above them that I hang down. They're the they're not the fancy grow lights that you see advertised. The ones I use, I call them construction lights. Uh, they have a squeeze handle that has a clamping device on them. I think contractors use a lot of them for different projects. Yeah, they're, anyway, they're not. They're not what you want, Ron. They're no. They're, no, you see, the thing um, is that light is made up of many, many different wavelengths, and that's why when we look at a rainbow, we're seeing all the different wavelengths, all the way from the far red to the far blue end. But plants only are able to use a very narrow wavelength of light. Uh, the chlorophyll simply, the scientists will tell you the word they use is excited. Most wavelengths of light do not excite the chlorophyll and therefore do not let it absorb any energy. And the only wavelengths of light that, that will give your plants any benefit are lights in the blue end of the spectrum. And unfortunately no screw-in bulb really produces very much of that. There are some that might have a little blue filter, and you're getting to your eye, it's very, very bright. But in the plant's vision, 
um, only all it's seeing is yellow light, and it's you know it's like eating sawdust. You're not going to get anything out of that, and your plant's not well, getting. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. The bulbs I purchased uh, said on them that they are grow lights. Well, they, the, I the they I I have yet to see one of those so-called bulbs. Are they LEDs or are they standard filament bulbs? They're an LED bulb. Okay. And uh, I just bought them here about two weeks ago at a uh, big box store, Walmart. Yeah. And anyway, my question was this, that uh, if I want to build an enclosure around the growing area that I have, I found some very highly reflective material. It's, uh-huh. it's like an aluminum foil surface. It's very very light reflective. Uh-huh. If the light that comes off of these bulbs reflects off of that material does it carry the same benefit that the bulb directly above the plants have or do they lose something in in most cases it most definitely does and uh it it would be but now here's the thing you have to remember too air circulation is very important around those plants Uh both for gas exchange and to reduce fungal problems so if Uh you're going to close them up in something like that um it would i i have this vision you know of uh uh maybe i should have been a cartoonist you know how people sit out there that are foolishly trying to to tan their skin with those big reflectors i see this plant on a lounge chair with its reflector set up so it can get more sun but uh, and and it actually it actually would help but it yeah. don't don't sacrifice all your air movement put a little small fan device of some sort in there to keep the air moving and think about think about going with a tube uh rather than than a spotlight type of light i'd be interested to see um let me ask you one more thing do these little clip-on contractor lights do they produce any heat when you put your hand in front of them do you do they feel warm or does it feel totally no no, the okay. they the uh, I guess because they're an LED, they did they are not heat generating. I guess I'm, well, I'm not that, an electrician. I don't well, know that as a fact. Yeah, it. But, uh, yeah, it. The the thing is that you want them as close to the plants as possible, and that's right, why. Yeah, in the yeah. days before LED, we couldn't use any of the incandescent bulbs because they simply uh-huh. burn the heck out of the little plants. Okay. But All the right. closer the closer you can get those bulbs to the plants without burning, um, uh-huh. the more benefit the plants are going to derive. But okay, if you now I, I the the top when I'm I said enclosure that was probably the wrong term to use. It's just four wall. Uh-huh. Uh, the the top will be open because that's where the cross member is at that uh, these bulbs hang from. And sure. so the top will be completely open. The only reflection I would be getting from is the four sides, yeah. Uh, yeah. like walls, four walls, right. basically. But, so but, I just wanted to know if there was any benefit in using something like that or if uh, the reflective light that comes off those walls uh, wouldn't be of any benefit to the plants at oh, no, all. No, no, it, it will be a benefit to the plants, but those four walls are still impeding your airflow. And right, oh, down, okay. at, right down at soil level is where that air circulation uh-huh. is important. In a greenhouse, we call them HAF, 
uh, fans uh-huh. stands for hor- horizontal airflow. And they're mounted on the walls to keep the air moving around. And you want to do that in a miniaturized version, you know, in your grow box that you uh-huh. have created. But okay. uh, now, if you get into this big time, though, um, get, you know, one of the ones that uh, get yourself a fixture that handles a tube rather than the screw in yeah. bulb. And they come on yeah. a chain that you can lower up and down. I think you're okay. going to find long term. That um, that that's going to give you better results, um, and and you know a home project that you could do so to speak. And I'm thinking back a lot of years ago to when I was a little kid. I was fascinated. My grandfather uh, grandmother's house had a chandelier in it with the little prisms that hung down all around it, and there were always a, yeah. a few extras that they had. And I found you could take that out and you could hold it up in the sunlight, and you could see a rainbow in there. And I thought that was really <laughs> neat. But I took it yeah. inside, and I held it up to the lamp, and lo and behold, all I could see was the yellow end of the rainbow. I couldn't see the whole end, the, the whole rainbow, and it took a oh. couple of years of college before I realized, hey, that was because those lamps weren't putting out the full spectrum the way the sun was. So I if see. you can find an adult form of that same thing, just hold yeah. it up uh, to your light and look and see how much of the rainbow you see. If you see the blue end of the rainbow... You've got a great plant light. If all you're seeing oh. is a yellow and red end, then the box store lied to you about how good a plant light it was, so to speak. And that's <laughs> okay. you know that's a, that's a long Thank discussion you, about about light, but it's a very good question, and I really would love to hear back from you how it works for you because uh, well I yeah I, I'll be very interested if if we can find a you know a screw in type of bulb that is indeed producing the kind of light that plants need. It'll really open right. up a lot more opportunities. So uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get back with you as soon. It'll be a while because uh, up here in Branson, it's still pretty right. chilly. I'm not going to start seeds for a while yet. But as soon as I've had an opportunity to use them and, and see what kind of results I'm getting, I'll get back with you. Well, I plan to be right here, and I know you'll be right there. So I'll look forward to our next <laughs> visit. And I uh, hope okay. you have a wonderful, happy new year. And the same to you and your family, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Well, we're about 20 seconds away from news time here. And after that, we'll get our weekly visit in with Mr. Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. We try to save uh, a little bit of that last half hour for a few more phone calls. So uh, we look forward to visiting with you then. But right now, really looking forward to finding out what's been going on with the Dirt Doctor. You'll hear us right here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right. Well, Jimmy, I'm presuming that since we went uh, directly to the music that uh, we <laughs> we have Howard online ready to talk to us. So uh, I've just, just got some pictures from the Dirt Doctor, but let's have a discussion with him. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. I was going to send them to you, but I ran out of time uh, before we went on here. So, yeah, we had some interesting uh, things happen. I thought we could chat about it a little bit today during the uh, cold weather. Uh, well, the the results of the cold weather, unless Dallas is very different than San Antonio, we're shorts and shirt sleeves weather here. It's uh, Our cold was very severe down here, just as it was for you guys. And just looking through your pictures quickly here. We're seeing a lot of that same thing around here, but uh, um, we're actually seeing a lot of damage to plants that came through two years ago 
with less damage. And uh, as we've discussed, I think it's probably partly due to the fact that it was so warm and got cold so quickly. But what's your take on it? Do you think uh, do you think these trees with the leaves that have just uh, just frozen and in in our cases down here? The main things we're seeing that on are sycamores and red oaks and some of the crepe myrtles and things that hadn't dropped their leaves. Do you think they're just going to lose the leaves and come out normally in the spring, or do you think we've got some tissue damage to the limbs themselves? No, I don't think there's going to be any serious long-term damage, but what's happened is it's kind of curious because the, um, the fall color, on a lot of plants, never showed up. One of those pictures I showed you there that has more rounded leaves, that's a rusty black hole by Burnham. Oh, really? It never, okay. it, it never came close to putting on its red fall color. Wow. And I think what we've got is the third year of pretty damaging winter. And it, I don't know, maybe it's the norm now, who knows. But, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned to you that the rusty black hole by Burnham last spring also didn't put on one flower it didn't have a yep. flower on it and, and normally it's had this, yeah normally pretty good yeah well so, this time you know it froze we had 10 degrees i guess is what it was this time the the leaves froze before the red color came on now here's the more more curious part of that i'm seeing that on the um Camby oaks, the big camby oaks, including uh, the one in my yard, but uh, even more dramatically on the big one that's near my office that has red color that normally lasts through the, the winter. When that 10 degrees hit, it was still bright green. It hadn't uh-huh. even started to move into to fall, the fall color it does. So it was the delay of the fall color combined with that 10 degrees that um, just really fouled up some of the looks on the plants. I'm looking out at the viburnum, evergreen viburnum right now, the odoratissima, and it's it's damaged pretty badly on the top. Yeah. Whether it yeah. comes out or not, <clears throat> uh, we'll, we'll see the bottom of the plant. The, the leaves look pretty good. But it's just been very, very curious results on the trees. Oh, on your cambi oak, and um, I, I don't see much... Uh... You know, on the rusty black hole, that's one of my favorite plants as well. Are you seeing any further red developing since the freeze is past? And the reason I ask that is uh, we've got, Roberta has a beautiful big red oak on her property, just, uh, you know, what people down here call a Spanish oak. It's just, uh, uh, it did the same thing. It froze and it was all brown, but you can, it, it's never, it's certainly not going to be beautiful, but you can see a little reddish you can see a little hint of red to it, and I quite frankly just haven't been out real close to the tree to see see exactly what's producing that. But have have any of your ones that the leaves frozen? Have they gone on to produce any color at all, or is this just going to be a case of turn brown until they fall off? Uh, it looks like it's killed them, and they're they're gone. So uh-huh. the parodia, the the uh, Persian ironwood at my office, that's what one of the little vertical. Uh, tree that I sent you. That's what that one is, and it, you know, usually has some really nice fall color, and it didn't have any at all. But the big one at my house had started to put on a little bit of yellow fall color, and then it ruined it right in midstream. So yeah, yeah. The the one that's curious is the ginkgo. The ginkgo had gorgeous fall colors, prettiest yeah. I've ever 
seen. Yeah. And, uh-huh. But but the timing on the other things is really a head scratcher because of the delay. It yeah. just you know didn't happen. When the ginkgo gets its fall color, mine mine usually puts its yellow color on later than others uh-huh. in the uh, area here. So since it did it at at the right time or at a time to be really beautiful, you would think that the other plants would kind of respond the same way, but they were they were really a flame out. Yeah, well, and and I have to say the same thing about crepe myrtles. Uh, normally we have, you know, especially yep. the pink and red crepe myrtles are beautiful fall color. They had very little, and lots of them, the leaves did the same thing. They just froze, and they're still on the on the plants, just brown leaves sitting up there. And a few of the, even though I don't like the tree, I have to say Bradford pears, the aristocrats, that whole group of pears, they typically have beautiful fall color, and it was very disappointing this year. They're, they're certainly not a tree I recommend planting for reasons we've discussed of how they fall apart, but uh, it seemed like we were going to have no fall color, and then for a very brief period, we had beautiful fall color you know, on your ginkgos, and actually we had beautiful color on the cypress trees. We had beautiful color on some of the yeah. elm trees, but it uh, seems like the things that typically produce the redder leaves, we had almost none and uh it's it's been an interesting year the the reason i ask about damage and i just i you know i i guess it's something we never really looked at in plant physiology but you as you well know the leaves when it's time for the trees to drop them there's actually a change in that tissue at the base of the leaf petiole that, that what they call the abscission layer and it shuts off all those little vessels that normally translocate, you know, water and nutrients and things like that. And that didn't happen. They hadn't, the, that abscission layer hadn't done its thing yet. And uh, I just don't know whether the freeze would, would cause any issues there or whether the leaves are just going to fall off and then the buds sprout out like they normally do. But it, it's going to be a very interesting year to watch from, uh, from a physiology standpoint as well as from a horticultural standpoint. Yeah, it's really a curious deal. Uh, three, you know, three very unusual winters in a row. One of the vegetable gardens that I've helped with over in the Flower Mound area, they covered their uh, cool season crops with floating row cover, and there was some pretty severe damage to broccoli oh, yeah. and cabbage, uh, cabbage and cauliflower and Swiss chard. But it wasn't all the plants. It was uh-huh. it was real spotty on that. <laughs> and I think that one of the things that I should have been uh, more firm about uh, in general, and especially on specific projects like that where they're way out in the wide open uh, spaces and subject to wind a little bit more, is using a double layer of the floating row cover. Yep. And I don't think we would have seen those kind of problems. My bay, uh, the leaves are fried on it again. You know, the the yep. stems that had come up and you know it had gotten back to ten feet tall or something, and mm-hmm. it looks like they're uh, fried pretty good. Probably not killed, but just cosmetically messed up, and not not a lot of good bay leaves for cooking for a while. Well, and it's funny you say that because I I dined out last night at. Uh, Oh, it's, it's a great place. We'll have to go sometime up in Bernie that has the best hamburgers I've ever eaten. But uh, it's he, next door. He has a very upscale cuisine restaurant, and he has his hamburger place next to it. But he had a bunch of bay trees out on the patio, 
And uh, that's one thing he came out while I was having my burger and said, go over and look at my bay trees and tell me what to do or whatever. And uh, and his got fried, but uh, I, I took my hand and just kind of slid it up the stem and, uh, you know, got a lot of brown bay leaves. And they're not quite as aromatic as usual. But I said, Keith, don't waste these. They're not going to be quite the same as what you're used to. But uh, they still had a surprising amount of flavor and aroma to them. So uh, uh, people that have before they totally discard them, when I look at the price of bay leaves in the grocery store, <laughs> if, if if your leaves froze, you might still be able to uh, recoup some of the damage, so to speak, uh, out of that. But uh, it's it's been weird. And uh, like I say, we have things here that came through almost untouched uh, that froze in uh, two years ago, and we have other things that came through just fine. We have a lot of damage here at the nursery on Akubas. Um, the plants certainly are killed. But a lot of the leaves are frozen black, especially up toward the top of the plant. And I'm used to Akubas drooping when it gets cold and then being absolutely beautiful the next day. But uh, I'll, I'll take a picture of that and send you because it's the first time I've ever seen cold damage on Akubas. And the plants are going to come out fine. But uh, they got they got hit pretty hard. And down here, one of our most popular plants is Viburnum suspensum, the so-called Sandanqua viburnum. Not really as pretty a plant as the, uh, you know, as the mirror leaf types that we were talking about, but um, they're very popular because they are almost totally deer resistant, and the tops on them just totally froze. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm sure the plants will be all right because when you look down at the base, the green, you know, still looks good. I've gotten out and looked very carefully at some pittosporum, and I uh, have not found any sign of splits or cracks. And so hopefully we're not going to see the that delayed cold damage that we've seen in the past. But uh, yeah, it, Sometimes you can see that delayed yeah. deal on, on those. The Akuba is interesting. One thing you might want to do with your plants, I know you have them across the front of the, uh, the right. retail store there, but uh, sometimes when you get that black... Uh -huh. Color in the leaves, it can be from sunburn or and or freeze, but there's usually a, a, a pathogen related as well. Mm. And uh, I don't remember if it's bacterial or fungal. It may be bacterial, but in any case, I think that cornmeal in that bed uh, and prune that black stuff out might be worth uh, might be worth doing because there may be a little disease coming along with whatever the physical damage was. Boy, that, that's an excellent suggestion, and I think I'll suggest to the guys that we uh, uh, add a little bit of hydrogen peroxide to the garret juice and spray them with that. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah, right. Pero peroxide. It's a, it's a good plant, but it's got that funny little cork. I, I see it in mine that I have at the office, and they were planted before I got there, so I don't know, you know anything about the bed in that area really got them amended it that much because everything is looking pretty pretty good but i probably ought to do the same thing i ought to do what i recommend to others. <laughs> we're, we're all a little bit guilty about that but you know speaking of that front bed along shades of green uh along with those akubas um you know we've got a good deal of uh the old-fashioned aspidistra cast iron plant in there and um two years ago it froze to the ground Every leaf was ruined, and I've got to go back and look at it carefully, but to this point, I haven't seen any damage at all on it. It seems to have come through. We didn't get quite as cold. I think we got, I had uh, 12 degrees up in the hill country. I think we got about 16 here at the nursery, 
and we had close to 10 degrees two years ago, and uh, maybe their, their cold hardiness is right there in the middle of that range, but uh, that's one of the ones that was hurt two years ago and uh, doesn't seem to have been hurt this time. And looking at things like holly fern, I'm seeing more damage to the top of the plants, but and there are a few exceptions out there, but uh, uh, down underneath there's still lots of healthy bright green leaves. Now, some of the asparagus uh, plants, the foxtails, as well as the mings, um, and, and this is interesting, and I think it's something we, we both need to really be watching carefully, but um, springerite, foxtails, uh, all of those densiflorous uh, varieties, uh, they, got a lot of, they got a lot of cosmetic damage. But the little real feathery, the asparagus plumosus, which I think is so pretty, we have a customer that has big, big beds of that as a ground cover. Um, and some of it's in the sun, some of it's in the shade. But I rode by to check her landscape uh, because it's just so beautiful. But I went by, and asparagus plumosus seemed to be totally untouched. And she's on the far north side of San Antonio, so I'm sure she was down in that 12, 13 degree range. But the asparagus plumosus looks absolutely beautiful, um, whether it was covered or whether it was uncovered. And I've loved that little plant for a long time. It's a little bit harder to come by in the trade. But uh, I don't know if you've ever grown it or how you feel about it. But uh, Well, it's... that was the other one I was going to tell you about that I have. I, I have one that has that look to the foliage, but it gets tall. It gets three or four feet tall. Now, that's Myriocletus. Yeah. I'm sorry? I, th I think that's Myriocletus. I think that's the one they call Ming. And, uh, Ming? Yeah, yeah M-I-N-G. Well, I've got it in a pot, and I forgot. Uh -huh. uh, usually what I do is I cut it back, and then I uh -huh. cover it with floating row cover or something like that, and I totally forgot it because I was working on the greenhouse and some other things, and I told Judy and everybody that it was going to be a goner. I'm sorry, I forgot about doing it. It's still just as green as a gourd. It, <laughs> it doesn't seem to have even noticed that it got cold. You know, and, uh, I, yeah, tough plants. Yeah, but but it's interesting too, and in that you know I'm going to have to get out and look. I don't I don't know. Oh, gosh, I'd have to look. I don't know if we have any of it planted around here, but uh, I'll uh, next time I buy Kathy's, I'll take a picture of her uh, plumosus ground covers. Cause it, and it will get tall. Of course, plumosus is, we used it as a cut foliage of my grandfather's flower shop when I was very young, and it's got some little yeah, thorns well, in it. <laughs> but it's, yeah, uh, uh, but, too. yeah but it, it, it was totally. So I'll, I'll take a look at the Ming as well because... Uh, um, I'll just... send you a picture of mine. There's one, mm -hmm. one of the longest shoots. The uh, the color is faded a little bit, but I was just mesmerized that right after the freeze, it didn't. I, I expected it to be just fried, you know, and melted, and it <laughs> wasn't wasn't that at all. That's really interesting, you know. That's, but it's we, you know, and I. I'm reminding myself to make notes, so I, I always forget until after the fact, and then I go back, and I'm sure I can't remember everything that I really, really wanted to remember and write down, but we need to be sure and, and make notes of these things, because uh, I, we're going to, if if this trend of colder weather continues, we may have to start adjusting our, our palate that we recommend just a little bit, uh, because they're... 
I know there are people out there probably getting discouraged that uh, have had some damage three years in a row now on things that we normally don't see it on. Well, I know that you've got a friend that's a real good weatherman. Is there any indication that not only are we having some cold events, but the events the last three years have all three been associated with warmer weather prior to, to the, the cold? Is that rapid changing kind of thing, is that something that's always been around, or is that something new? And I'm going to have to corner David and ask him that. Haven't seen as much of him. He, uh, um, you know, I'd, I'd call it not adoption, but rescue. He and his wife have uh, adopted some special needs children, and his uh, his, oh, wow. his responsibilities as a dad have kind of taken away some of the time. I used to get to see him uh, when his responsibilities were more strictly related to weather would be the best way to put it. And uh, But I will track him down, and, and I will ask him that question. We haven't had the in-depth discussions we used to about about all those uh, Madden-Julian oscillations and the Western Pacific oscillations and how they impact the El Ninos and the La Ninas, and I've, I've really missed my visits with them, but I'll make it a point to get to get with them and, uh, and ask those questions because I, I haven't had that opportunity. But he does... Uh, and he he sends usually a monthly update to our groundwater district, and uh, he said right now, as far as moisture, we're in the middle of what they call inso neutral, which means uh, on the dry side, but not really severe severe drought. Um, but I have to say, around us, uh, there it, it's been spotty. There've been places around. Uh, the guy I buy hay from had seven inches of rain here a little while back, while we had less than half an inch. Roberta and I both, and we're not twenty miles away from him. So it's been very, very variable. But uh, overall, we're we're pretty desperately dry in a lot of this area. Well, you know, the one thing that <clears throat> jumps out to me about this last these last three winters is that there's no consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, each each of the three winters, we're seeing different kinds of um, situations, different kind of results, different kind of damage on on the plants. That, that That's the thing that really has me scratching my head, is why there's such a, a variety of reactions uh, to the plants. And I guess there's just an, enough difference in when it happened, how warm it was before it happened, how cold it got, what the wind was, you know, how long it stayed at the lower temperatures and all that. It's probably just all perfectly explainable, but it is a, a head-scratcher. Well, it is, and I personally think that the soil moisture probably had a lot to do with it because, uh, um, unfortunately, it was after the fact. I was fussing at a couple of our guys and saying, did any of you all remember to give this uh, Confederate jasmine a thorough soaking before the cold, and they all just kind of, Kind of got a dumb look and said, I'm, I don't know that we did that. But I, I bet you if we really investigate, we're going to find the things that were hurt worst were probably the ones that were driest. And uh, I, I consistently, though, I still think that plants on the organic program fare better. But, uh, oh, no question about that. Yeah, yeah. It's sure been, it's sure been a, a crazy year. One, one quick thing that I wanted to do, uh, just because it made me laugh, because it is so stupid and I guess the so-called Arbor Day Foundation probably does some good things, but the, you know, the, and you know them, I'm sure, and you get the same calls I do because uh, 
you know, they send out people that join up. Uh, they, they send them their bundle of 10 trees that they should go out and plant in their area. Well, a friend of mine up in the Hill Country, his lady friend, I guess, joined or whatever, and she got her bundle of 10 trees, and he was asking me exactly how he should plant these. And keep in mind that this is Texas Hill Country. But let me read you, let me read you the 10 trees that the Arbor Day Foundation sent him for the Texas Hill Country. Eastern Redbud, Colorado Blue Spruce, Pin Oak, Northern Red Maple, Northern Red Oak, Northern River Birch, Silver Maple, Sugar Maple, White Flowering Dogwood, and White Pine. <laughs> now, how can an organization that claims that it knows trees, and I texted Larry back and I said, Larry, there's not one tree on that list that I would recommend that she planted her landscape, but I, I just... To, I, I don't know. I, I just shake my head in an organization that claims to promote trees and sends out ten trees that are going to die within three years. I just uh, anyway, I, 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 I guess they base all that stuff on midwestern states and that environment. I don't know because you're right. There's no way any of those work very well, especially long term. Yeah, pin oak yeah. is you know the biggest giveaway in in the list there, and I, I guess. People make that mistake because they see pin oaks growing not that far from us, you know, mm -hmm. in East Texas and yeah, yeah, Houston is Sandy not a bad tree. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's but, a beautiful tree. Yeah, in the right kind oh, yeah. of soil. But blue spruce. So, some of those other things. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I just I, I was just really amazed that they think we're going to grow sugar maples and blue spruce in the hill country, and uh, I, I was a little surprised somebody called me down and I'm so glad they did because I uh, we were having a discussion about pinyon pines and I was saying that uh, you know they're mainly a higher altitude tree and good in New Mexico and this guy sent me some beautiful pictures of course he lives in northwest Texas at a little little higher altitude but he said there are pinyons that do very well here so I'm finding I need to be a little bit more cautious in making broad sweeping statements but <laughs> I think you I think we can pretty much uh, classify a few trees like silver maples that are just bad choices even if they grow for a while but anyway that yeah. uh i was having one of my uh usual conversations with uh, one of my consulting customers just a couple of days ago and they were at they had been given one of the uh, hybrid maples that i'll keep warning people about uh -huh. And uh, boy, it's common because after they they went through this this fall looking really pretty, and that's what causes everybody to get on the phone and talk to their landscape people and want to plant those things. But they don't realize that that thing is a cross between a, a, a silver maple and uh, a red maple, and it's just not going to live very long at all. But boy, that is a common common problem that I have to deal with here in Dallas. Oh, yeah, and we do here as well, but uh, we just send them to dirtdoctor.com and tell them to, to you know, <laughs> that there are answers out there, and even if we don't know all the answers or have time to, you know, have a long conversation when you got 10 people that also want to have long conversations, but uh, it is one really great place that people can go to uh, to get a lot of those answers. Well, you guys have a great new year, and uh, get into organic gardening if you're not already and if you got any questions we'll uh, both be around to help out any way we can 
We most certainly will. Let me ask you one more thing, something that a caller brought up this morning that uh, I had not heard about, but uh, uh, we've really had fire ant issues, uh, you know, and it's, it, 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 they're just they're so much more pervasive than it seems like they have been, which is a little unusual. But uh, this fellow was talking about um, making, in effect, a bait trap for fire ants using nothing more than, uh, um, oh, gosh, it just jumped out of my mind, the uh, uh, boric acid, uh, dissolving boric acid uh, uh, in water and, and, and adding some sugar to it and said it was making a very effective trap for fire ants that uh, they seem to come to 365 days a year um, you know, ours ours kind of disappear when it gets real dry, and then they just explode when we get some moisture. But uh, I'd not heard of anybody, in effect, baiting them with uh, with uh, boric acid sugar water mixture. Is that anything that you've come across or have an opinion on? Well, we've got uh, some, some baits mentioned in my books and on the uh-huh. website that are for ants that are, have a boric acid bait. Uh, boric acid base. You got to be careful with boric acid, though. Uh, the, one of the companies that I've worked with uses a broadcast. It's a granular mm-hmm. product that has uh, boron in it, has boric acid in it. And I was telling them, you know, that fits into an organic program to a degree. But if you use yep. it over and over and over again, you're going to create a boron problem yep. in the soil. And that's so uh, that's. Careful. Yeah, it it is a known plant killer, and that's exactly the same thing that I told uh, James, my caller, this morning. Is that uh, um, be sure you're not getting it too much of on the plants because you're exactly right. Boron is quite toxic uh, to most vegetation uh, if you get very much well, of it on there. It's important to have as as yeah. a background trace trace mineral, but you get it with all the different organic products that we recommend. So it's not anything I would use. I guess I'm. I'm really cavalier about this or just spoiled because I have, you know, two properties and I don't have a fire ant ever. And, yeah. I, and there were fire ants on both properties when I bought bought both of them. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I've ever done for the fire ants is put out the dry molasses. But yep. you've got, <clears throat> I've been pretty consistent about putting it out on the entire property. You know, if you right. just do it in one spot, you're not going to, you're not going to accomplish anything. You got to do the entire property with it. And that's and that's been. Benef- Go ahead. You know, beneficial nematodes. I see the same kind of great results. The only there's been two or three projects. People that were readers or listeners that contacted me about not completely eliminating fire ants with that procedure, and mm-hmm. all three of them. It might have been three of them through the years, all three of them were under big slabs. The the, uh-huh. uh, the ants were protected under a, a big slab area. Well, why did I not have them under my driveway and under my deck? <laughs> you know, it's the same, well, same kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, and, and uh, this is a subject we'll take another time when we have more time, but we're the same way. Roberta and I both use uh, dry molasses, and it's it's all we need. And uh, the people that I've been hearing this from are people with big enough properties that they probably, for economic reasons, just didn't want to treat the whole property. But, right, uh, right. yeah, we, we have the same great results. And uh, 
And you're right with the beneficial nematodes. Uh, we tell people put them out this time of year because you're going to take care of thrips larvae. Uh, you're going to take care of this is the only time of year that ticks are down at ground level. And you can get those, and you, you get the fire ants 365 days a year with them. But um, the other interesting thing in the hill country, I don't encourage people to kill their fire ants outside of their yard because they're one of the few things that really uh, controls uh, ticks. And quite frankly, I'd a whole lot rather have fire ants than ticks with all the disease problems. And Dr. Kirby and I get calls almost every weekend to, or have discussions about tick disease. So I'm not into 100% eliminating fire ants other than your immediate yard and garden area. But uh, uh, it was just something that I had not encountered before. And I've seen dry boric acid baits, but I've never seen a liquid before. So I just uh, I wondered about your take on it. But we'll, we'll have an extended uh discussion because i think we're both on exactly the same page as far as fire ant control but uh we, we never run out of things to talk about howard we we could do this for three hours uh practically every day and i don't think we'd would run out of things so uh i guess my last question is is the newest book moving forward i know it's always uh, a slow process for the author but um is it is it steadily moving down the pike to, to production well it Continuing to grow because uh, <laughs> you know, I thought we were gonna, at the end and we were going to take it to print some time ago. So I, I'm continuing to add things to it. So good news is it's getting better uh, and better. And I'm, every time I hear a good tip that I uh, knew about or didn't know about, I'm adding it if it wasn't part of the book. And the financing people and you know that end of it, they've been real busy on other projects. It's still going to happen, we think, but. Uh, I can't give you any timing on it right now, but I'll sure. keep you posted. Well, my, my one suggestion at this point is whatever the ultimate name you choose for it is after the title, put Volume 1, <laughs> because invariably there's going to have to be a Volume 2 and so on and so on to add all those things that uh, you didn't get around to putting into this one. So, as always, we wish you guys the happiest uh, and best of New Year's, and uh it's such a pleasure, such a privilege to visit with you every week. So uh, give Judy a big hug for me. And Logan, when, when you see her, and uh, bow a handshake and just tell them we wish them all the very best for the new year. Well, same to all your peeps there, and we will talk next week. Everybody enjoy those healthy gardens out there. Howard, I'll send you some pictures and look forward to more from you. Thank you so much, sir. Yay. Thanks, Bob. Uh -huh. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Jamie, well, let's uh, run whatever we need to on commercials and then see if we've got any more questions on the telephone. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening here on a uh, kind of a, an overcast up in the hill country. It's a little drizzly. Uh, but anyway, it is warm, and it is going to be a great day to get out and fertilize, to do all the things we've been talking about doing. Hope you're planning to spend a bunch of the day outside. But uh, I believe we have uh, at least one caller at this point, and that would be Frank. Uh, good morning, Frank. Hey, how you doing, Bob? Well, um, I just heard you say about about uh, the fertilizing yard, and I must have missed that. But that's what I called about with that. The, the, of course, it's uh, St. Augustine grass, and it's brown. And I was wondering, I watered it yesterday and the day before just uh, because. Mm -hmm. Now, should I go ahead and fertilize and keep it watered, even though it's like... 
gone? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, it, St. Augustine is one of our grasses that typically doesn't brown out uh, the way Bermuda and Zoysia and things do in the winter, but this is when we get a cold winter, brown foliage is totally normal. I think if you were to get up close and personal with it, push those leaves back, you would see that the runners are still green. So I don't feel like that the St. Augustine is really damaged at all. This is just typical of what St. Augustine looks like uh, when we have a cold winter. But the roots do remain active, so fertilizer will very definitely benefit it. Uh, having some moisture will very definitely benefit it. But as I'm sure you know, that uh, green foliage is where we transpire the moisture out. That's where the water gets taken up through the roots and lost out through the leaves. Since the leaves have browned out, your grass is not going to use as much water, so it's not going to be have to have to be watered as often. But it most definitely does want to be watered uh, somewhere between every two weeks and every three weeks. Oh, good. Okay. All right. And then uh, go, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, get the fertilizer and water that in, I guess, uh, once and then start the three-week thing. Well, I, I think that's an excellent idea, but do remember that one of the advantages of organic fertilizer, which is what I'm sure you're going to be using, is it doesn't have to be watered in. It doesn't. It's not going to cause any damage if you get busy oh. and don't get a chance to water it. But organic products don't create that sudden water uptake. What people talk about burning with fertilizer really isn't burning, it's dehydration, and that's one of the many advantages to say an organic on your fertilizer. You can put it down, and if it's a week or a month before you get around to watering it, it's certainly not going to do any damage. It really won't go to work until it gets watered, but uh, don't you stand out there in the cold trying to water it. <laughs> You really don't have to, not that it's cold right now, but uh, it's one of the reasons it makes organics even better. I've been using that Medina now for yeah. over 20, over 20 years. Uh, you yes, got sir. Time for a story? You got time for a little story? Uh, go right ahead. <laughs> it was been, it's been about five years ago. One of my neighbors came over, and he said, Frank, you're going to get caught, man. They're going to find the hell out of you. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, look at your yard, Frank. Everybody's yard in the damn place is dying, and yours is green because there's no water. And I said, it may, might have something to do with organic. He said, what? I said, yeah, I've been using organic. Oh, oh man, I better have to try that. <laughs> well, it's it's really funny that you should say that because uh, I think it was it was the last drought, I think 2011, our water company, and I don't know whether it was a big uh, San Antonio one or whether it was, uh, you know, one of the little bergs around somewhere, but we have a customer. They actually went out and wrote her a ticket and sent her a, you know, a, a summons to court uh, for watering uh, when she shouldn't have, and she got out her water bills and she got out her meter readings and actually went to court and said, you look at this. I have not been watering regardless of what you're, and I won't use the adjective that she used to describe <laughs> their inspector, but the judge looked at it and said, ma'am, I have to agree you haven't been watering, and threw the whole case out of court. But she she actually got the, the water Nazis, as I call them, you know. Um, and, and uh, you know, being on the water district up in the hill country, uh, unfortunately, we... We do have to be conservative with our water, and there are people that abuse that and should be, you know, taken to uh, 
uh, extreme measures, but some of them are pretty ridiculous. And, and these ones that think they can judge water use based on whether the green lawn's green or not, they uh, they certainly need a good lesson in organics. So uh, the, the question's going to be, will your neighbor take your advice and convert to organics so he or she can have a green lawn as well? I told, I told him, I said, when you get a chance, you come over here and look. I've got roly-polies in the flower beds. I got earthworms in the yard. I said, when it rains, the worms come up. They're walking on the sidewalk. I said, and you don't have that. They're keeping the, or the ground turned up and everything. You know, golly. Anyway. Uh, well, you're 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 a you're a good uh, disciple, so to speak. You get out there and keep spreading the word, and uh, it's it's amazing to me, you know, because I've seen exactly the same thing you're talking about, but. There's still people out there that are totally blind to it and say, oh, that couldn't be what it is. There's got to be some other explanation. But uh, you go on enjoying your green yard and uh, and be proud of what you're doing because you're sure doing it right, Frank. It's a pleasure visiting with you this morning. Okay. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Uh, Jimmy, let's go and get our last uh, commercial break of the show out of the way, and then we'll visit with Debbie. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. And uh, go ahead and uh, bring uh, Debbie up, uh, up uh, uh, Jimmy. But uh, Debbie, hang on just a second while I talk about one thing, and then I'll get your question. But uh, just got the most wonderful news, and that is that uh, Martin Bamba is live in the studio today. But the great thing is that Jim is able to be back with him a day. Jim had some health problems, as you probably heard, and hasn't been on the air for some time. But, Jim, buddy, I'm so glad you're doing better and so glad you are back in the studio. All right. Well, let's talk with Debbie. Uh, how are you this morning, Debbie? I'm doing well, and welcome back, Jim. God is good. <laughs> Amen. Um, Amen. Uh, thank you for taking my call before you hurry out of there. Um, I just wanted to find out because I had beautiful everything because it was spring before it got bitter cold. <laughs> right. So all my beautiful hibiscus and all my plants that are so pretty uh, are now just, I watch them as they froze. At what point do I cut them back and take them away? Because they look horrible now, but... I'm not sure if I cut them back, if that's going to freeze more to the bottom, and right now it's protected. Well, I I hate to tell you this, but what we would, what I would have to do to really answer that question properly is for you to make a list and for us to, you know, go through it individually, plant by plant, because uh, the the answers are going to vary a great deal. Tropical hibiscus, the reds and pinks and yellows, uh, uh, if they weren't covered or brought in, they're probably dead. You might as well, oh. unfortunately, you're going to be starting over on those. The hardy hibiscus, the so-called mallows, the Texas star, uh, the colors are limited on those. They're sort of a red-purplish one and a white one and a pink one. And those freeze to the ground and come right back out in the spring and uh, can live for many, many years so long as they get the water and fertilizer that they need. But they are totally cold hardy. But unfortunately, the tropical hibiscus aren't. Um, there are a lot of plants that are sort of in between. In the tropicals, we have to talk about uh, things like bougainvilleas, that if the bougainvilleas were mulched, they probably froze back to the level of the mulch. 
but they you know they will certainly be back out when the weather gets warm again if bougainvilleas were raised up in hanging baskets or something they're probably dead uh because they you know again being tropical uh now on the other hand there are a lot of beautiful perennials many different salvias many different lantanas uh many different kufias uh gerantas things like that uh they are most definitely going to come back assuming that they've gotten the water they need and other things but they are probably frozen all the way to ground level or mulch level so you probably might as well go ahead and cut them back to you know two or three inches tall because since you're not actually cutting into live wood it's not going to cause them to sprout back out again quickly so uh on the lantanas on the uh the tender salvias, things like that, go ahead and, and trim them back because all you're doing is cutting off dead foliage. Now, there are those other plants that are right in the middle, like roses and some of our shrubs, some of our flowering shrubs, that to cut them back now would stimulate new growth, which might very well freeze back and, and damage the plant even further. But um, so I, what I'm telling people, what we're telling people on roses and things is take off the dead leaves and take off any truly frozen brown dead tissue, but don't cut down into the live green tissue because that's what's going to, you know, produce the new growth. So I, I guess the closest thing I can can come to giving you a blanket answer is anywhere that you are sure that that woody stem is totally frozen, is brown and dead, go ahead and cut it back because you're not going to uh, cause any increase or any premature regrowth in that. On the other hand, if the stems are appear to be green and healthy but the foliage is brown, just run your hand up and down the stem, take your shears rather than your pruners, you know, and cut off the damaged foliage, but don't do much cutting on the green stems. And, you know, on most other things, you know, hold off until we're past the danger of a hard freeze. Um, roses, so like roses. I have I'm blue sorry. plumbagos and cannas, um, which were just beautiful. And oh, yeah. I think the blue plumbagos, I would shock them because yep. I think they're what you're talking about because they do come back when they get cut. So that makes well and and just cut check the stem on your blue plumbago if it uh if it's still if you can scratch it and it's still green don't cut them back if it's brown um like a lot of ours in the beds are it froze down to probably two inches tall so uh it may very well be something that you can go ahead and cut back but uh just reach down scratch the stem you'll know very quickly whether it's brown and dead or whether it still has green in it i'm 99 percent sure your plumbago is very definitely going to come back this spring but uh it you may be able does. yeah you may be able to cut it back further than you think your cannas on the other hand they have just melted now they are a an underground rhizome they are both definitely kind of come back for you this spring but you might as well go and cut them, you know, all the way down to the ground. If you have things like banana palms, uh, do the same thing. If the trunks weren't wrapped, they weren't protected, uh, they're just mush. The one thing I'll tell you about many of these, oh, more succulent things like banana palms and even cannas, that frozen, that sap that froze can really be staining. Wear your oldest clothes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm laughing. Howard Garrett was talking last week about some English gardener that uh, that did her gardening without clothes and caused many traffic jams and things like that. But <laughs> her, her husband said that that he knew that his wife, and this is a famous author uh, and, of a time past, had had come back in from gardening when the honking stopped <laughs> and the traffic jam dissipated. So I, I'm not going to suggest that you avoid the problems that way, but I will tell you. Wear your oldest clothes when you go out to cut these things back because you will get what we used to call nursery stain that uh, simply will not come out. <laughs> so be be careful what you're wearing when you're when you're doing that. But uh, oh, you know we all need a little levity. <laughs> Just that right. anyway. That uh, and apparently this was some famous English gardener of a few years back, but it just. I don't know. I, I love a good chuckle, and that certainly was. That's but real funny. You, you don't need hey. to be creating any traffic jams. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Hey, before before freeze back in the spring, I came to your store and got that little paper that had what to do with orange oil and the vinegar uh-huh. and my weed stuff, and my yep. grass was doing very well. The minute we had a freeze, now this weed is coming back into my grass. Is it the wrong uh-huh. time to try to spray it with that or is it going to kill my grass if i do your grass is probably pretty brown now isn't it yes it is then you're totally safe to beautiful green weeds yeah well and that's what is so good about the vinegar and orange oil mix is because it only works against green foliage you are totally safe to go out and spray everywhere you're seeing the green weeds you will kill the weeds, and you will have absolutely zero damage to your grass, whether it's Bermuda, Toysia, or St. Augustine, because uh, that that foliage is brown and will not be affected by the vinegar and orange oil in any way. But uh, And that's the easiest way to control green weeds. When your grass is brown, spray anything that comes back will probably be coming from seeds, and you probably will continue to have seeds sprout over the next two or three months. But as they come out, as long as your grass is brown, you're Totally okay to spray your vinegar and orange oil. will not hurt your grass at all. Awesome. Well, I'm having my yard man catch it instead of mulching it into my yard because it didn't want to mulch those weeds back into it. Bob, well, actually, in, unless, you're, unless your weeds have seeds on them, um, it's up to you whether you're not going to increase the weeds by mulching them back in because they haven't gone to seed yet. So you do whatever you like. If you'd rather put them in the compost pile, do so. But uh, to mulch them back into the yard is not going to increase your weed problem. Oh, well, I'll go look and see. I just saw them, and I was like, no, I don't need any more of those. But I'll go spray them and take care of it. You have a great weekend. Thank you so much for being there to help all of us. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure being here, Debbie. And uh, Happy New Year to you and good gardening, and I know we'll talk again. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, just about a minute until uh, news time here and the end of the show for today. We will talk gardening tomorrow from 8 till 11, followed by Your Pet's Health with Dr. Dan Kirby. Right now, it's getting real close to time for the Home Improvement Show with Martin Bamba and Jim today. Jim, buddy, I'm so glad that you're back on the air. Uh, We'll be listening and just so, so glad that things are going, going in the right direction, and I'm sure that makes it the happiest possible new year that it could be for you so we're just we're really glad you're back with us and no offense to martin but the show's better when the two of you guys are doing it together (laughs) and martin you know i'm teasing you on that because we certainly enjoyed listening to you solo for the past few months but uh it is it is jim brings a whole other dimension to it and uh 
Um, anyway, we'll be listening and uh, just really glad you're back. Everybody get out and enjoy this beautiful day. Fertilize your plants and uh, water things thoroughly if they need it. I'll see you tomorrow here on KTSA Radio.